So here we are, <clears throat> lesson seven. And as far as numbers of lessons go, we are on numbers. Uh, uh, wasn't that just a brilliant bit of humor? All right. I, I, thank you, Chuck. Thank you. Not even Avery laughed at that one. I'm, I'm, that was really bad. So, <laughs> all right. So here we are. We've looked at Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus uh, earlier this week, and uh, this is kind of that that fifty thousand foot perspective that we're giving. This isn't super in depth. That's why it is the a survey looking at uh, the message and the main themes. And again, remembering that this is about re redemptive history, not just history. Uh, so much more important than than just history. Uh, and so as we've done, uh, looking in to uh, see how these Old Testament um, events and everything else have been pointing toward Christ, pointing toward the gospel. <clears throat> so as we begin here our study numbers, we're going to look at those same things as well as we go through this. And in numbers, we're going to see that the people of Israel are packing up camp, uh, moving from Mount Sinai where God had them camped out at while he was speaking to Moses, giving Moses the law. And they're going to start moving toward uh, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And if you look at your handouts, you'll see there that there is a map of their journey. And it's only about 200 miles. But as we're well aware, that 200 miles took about 40 years. Uh, not because they were really slow at walking, but because they were really slow at obeying. Um, and so that 200 miles took them 40 years. And as we break these chapters down... <clears throat> we will see that the first 10 chapters are about them packing up at Sinai. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, when you go camping and your wife is packing, it takes a whole lot. So 10 chapters just on packing up at Sinai. Then a couple chapters uh, about their journey to Kadesh where the people rebel against God. Uh, then about six or seven chapters, 13 through 19, talking about their wanderings in the wilderness. And then 20 and 21, uh, their journey <clears throat> to the plains of Moab. And then 20 <clears throat> 22 through 36, uh, they're finally camped there on the banks of the River Jordan, and they are looking at the Promised Land. But uh, just as the story of Moses bringing the people out of Egypt wasn't just about bringing them out of slavery— the book of Numbers isn't just about them finding a place to live. Uh, there's always a bigger picture, always a deeper picture. Uh, and we've got to remember that this story fits into the bigger question of how God's promises to Abraham are being fulfilled. Because again, it all is the thread that points to Jesus. So God made a lot of promises to Abraham. And we're going to track uh, four key promises through the book of Numbers, that his people will have a place, that his people Israel will be numerous, that his people will be with him, and that, that means in his presence, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and that Abraham, through the Israelites, uh, all nations will be blessed. So we've seen these promises all in the book of Genesis, and we're going to track those as they are being fulfilled through uh, the events recorded in the book of Numbers. And as we've talked about with the, the first three books, 
The book of Numbers is crucial to understanding redemptive history because it's the first time that we've seen the possibility of all four of those promises coming true. Uh, remember we talked about in Leviticus, uh, well in Exodus, we saw that first part where God, the, the Israelites were a multitude, but they weren't a nation, they didn't have their own land. Then in Leviticus, we saw again, multitude, and finally they're becoming a nation as they're, they're having their own, their own moral law, their own civil law, their own national religion, but still no land of their own. Now, we're much more far in the process. <clears throat> we're going to see the possibility of all four promises coming true. So the, the people of God here are going to be attempting to uh, live in a place that they can, where they can enjoy God's presence and be a blessing to the nation. So the people, place, presence, and blessing, uh, <clears throat> finally all four, looking like they can actually be fulfilled. But as we have seen so far, the plan of redemption is a long process. Uh, there's a long time between God's initiation of that plan that we saw back in Genesis 3 and the actual arrival of the new heavens and the new earth that we see way in the future, even still. Uh, well, don't know how way in the future it is even still, but it's in the future, Revelation 21. Uh, and this is where finally people of all kindred, tribes, tongues, and nations will dwell in the peaceful promised land of eternal fellowship with God. And across the span, as we have seen, there are some big problems. And we'll see that the thing that kept them out of the promised land here in the book of Numbers is the exact same thing that keeps people out of the new heavens and the new earth, and that is unbelief. Unbelief. And so, there are two <clears throat> thematic ideas that are juxtaposed against one another that we're going to see here in the book of Numbers, and that is present problems, their, their unbelief, their rebellion, their disobedience, uh, and then past promises, God's faithfulness, his patience, his grace. So these things are going to be juxtaposed with one another, God's past promises and the people's present problems. Uh, can you tell a pastor about that? Present problems, past promises? Uh, <laughs> So one way to help you remember that is the, the, the acronym, just a bunch of P's. So, all right, I'm sure you'll remember that now. Moving on, the big question that we face here is this, who's going to win? Now, is it a question? On this side of the veil, it's definitely a question. But we know from the other side of the veil, it's never a question. But the question is, will God's promises prevail in the midst of disobedience, trust, and disbelief? Uh, the answer, and a good theme sentence for the book, would be this. Past promises will prevail in spite of present problems. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Um, but past promises will prevail in spite of present problems. And uh, we know that because this is about who God is not simply about who the nation of Israel is. And we know that our God is a sovereign and faithful God, as we have seen uh, in our studies of the, the books previous to Numbers. So in light of this theme, we can split Numbers into three parts. Um, it's, and it's how we're going to look at the rest of the book. Chapters 1 through 10, God preparing his people. <laughs> Chapters uh, for the fulfillment of his promises. Chapters 11 through 16, God punishing his people for their unbelief, uh, their lack of trust. 
Uh, and then chapters 17 through 36, God's patience with his people. So God preparing, God punishing, God's patience. And most importantly, that his promises will be fulfilled in spite of everything that has taken place. Because uh, we talked about last time, God's promises came before the law ever came. Um, his promise is a grace-filled promise, not a law-filled promise. So let's take a look at these first 10 chapters here. As God, God's preparation preserves his promises. So at the start of Numbers, God's people are still at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they're getting ready to break camp. And uh, you can imagine what the atmosphere uh, must have been like. You know, that this is it. They're, this is the moment that they've been waiting for. They are, they are getting ready to go to the land that has been promised them. They'd received the law. They're in a covenant with Yahweh. He's dwelling among them. And now he's getting ready to lead them to the land of Canaan, the promised land. Uh, and so you can imagine the sense of anticipation, the sense of excitement as they're packing up camp, getting things loaded up, uh, getting the tabernacle ready to travel. Uh, and... Uh, we see that God's promise of a great nation is taking form here at the foot of Mount Sinai as they're, they're heading out. Uh, they, we can read about a census to count how many men are able to fight in the army. Uh, and as you can see from the numbers, uh, or as you can see from, not from the numbers, from Numbers chapter 146, uh, that God's people are becoming a huge nation with over 600,000 men able to go to war. Uh, and not only that, but in the census of the priests in chapters three and four, we see that just priests, there are eight and a half thousand priests uh, here to serve God in, on behalf of Israel. So God's people, we see just the fighting men, over 600,000. Priests, eight and a half thousand. It's just some of the men. Uh, God's people, he is fulfilling that part of the promise to make a multitude. Then God's place. We see his promise for a place for his people also beginning to take shape. Because why are they making all these preparations to move? Because they are moving to the, the place that God has prepared for them and promised to Abraham centuries before. And uh, between these two periods of census, between chapters 1 and 4, uh, and heading out in chapter 10, we also see that God's people are being primed for the fullness of his presence. Uh, as we saw in Exodus, um, the people could not draw near to God unless they were clean, and on pain of death. And the tabernacle still fundamentally represented God's presence with his people, and the priest service identified them as specifically belonging to the Lord. And so in chapters 5 and 6, we see that the camp is cleansed, then we see that the tabernacle is consecrated in chapter 7, and then we see that the priests are being inducted into their roles there in chapter 8. But then in chapter 9 and 10, we see it center more on God's presence with his people when they start to move. Because uh, remember what we talked about the other night, that Moses said, Lord, if, if you don't go with us, I don't want to go. And so this is God's promise that his presence will not only be with them, but even lead them uh, as they, they begin to move. If you've got your Bibles with you, turn to Numbers chapter 9. 
verses 15 through 18. It says this, On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So, so it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Uh, now, previously, back in chapter 2, we see that the camp was designed so that the tabernacle, uh, which means also the cloud and the pillar of fire, were always in the center of their camp. Uh, and this is one reason it's easy for us to... How many guys would have loved to have been in that camp to see the manifest presence of God? I mean, how many guys would love it if nowadays when you're trying to make a decision about what to do, God would give you such an obvious sign as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire? Oh, I just go that way. Oh, and I do it now. That'd be awesome. Uh, so it's easy to see why we might be envious of that. Um, and on the surface, the thought of that is exciting and seems like it'd make things very easy. Uh, but the Bible tells us that this imagery of God's presence is just a mere shadow of what's to come. Because those of us who are Christians do have this prospect of seeing God face to face without certain death because of our sin. Uh, and one thing I've learned through life is that one danger of uh, trailblazes is that if you've ever been hiking or backpacking and, you know, trailblazes are the it's either a stack of rocks arranged in a certain way or sometimes an arrow pinned to a tree. Uh, when you get trailblazes, sometimes you quit paying attention to where you're actually going and you're just looking for trailblazes. Uh, and I think one danger of that is pretty soon you just pay attention to where the cloud is and where the fire is and you're not really paying attention to who God is. So I'm glad that uh, God does things in such a way that we pay attention to him and not just trailblazes that he puts on our path. Uh, so it's important to remember that we are far better off than the Israelites. We're far better off than the Israelites. Uh, we have God's word in, in our hands and his spirit dwells in us. That is an incredible, incredible thing. We don't need a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire because God himself dwells in us. We are more indwelt than the camp ever was. And then the final and more subtle preparation of God's promise to Abraham is in the blessing to all nations uh, through Israel. So at the end of this section, uh, Moses' father-in-law is thinking of not traveling with God's people, but Moses basically begs him to and then convinces him to continue on. So here, even if it's just with the one man there, we see God preparing to bless the nation as the first non-Israelite is integrated in. Again, a, a foreshadowing, pointing to the fact that God's promise through Abraham uh, isn't eventually only for the Jews, but for all nations. All right, so in summary, 
Everything is looking good for the Israelites. They're an exciting, exhilarating point in their history. The numerous people are obedient after the whole golden calf incident. Uh, uh, you know, that's just a minor thing on the road here. Um, but you can imagine after that, yeah, they're all obedient. God is, they, God through them is beginning to bless nations and they have Yahweh visibly guiding them to the promised land. Woohoo! But then suddenly things turn. So God's punishment preserves his promises. Uh, verse or chapters 11 through 16, you know, a lot when you're studying through scripture and you know, the how to study the Bible, you, you're looking for key words. Well, one of the key words for these next chapters is the word complain. It appears in ne nearly every one of the next, next six chapters. I started to say the next six chapters, but the next six chapters. Uh, in spite of great reason for optimism, God's people are complaining. They are grumbling. In 11, they're complaining about their hardships. Uh, they are complaining about their food. In chapter 12, Miriam, Aaron, you know, Moses' brother and sister are talking against him. Uh, and then in chapter 13, we find that God's people show that they don't trust that he is going to give them the land. I mean, everything he has done, and yet they still aren't trusting him. So in this chapter, Yahweh has instructed Moses to send spies into the land. And their mission, should they choose to accept, uh, was to simply do some fact-finding. Twelve spies went in, and on the re return, read this in chapter 13. If you want to turn to chapter 13 there, uh, verse, it, verses 27 through 29. And it tells us this. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Uh, they brought back some fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell in the sea and along the Jordan. Now, you can imagine this wasn't a report that Moses was hoping for. Uh, he was hoping that it would be more like what we see from Caleb in verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. I love that. And these spies are like, they're strong, they're mighty, fortified cities, they're huge, they're massive. And Caleb goes, let's go, let's do it now. Uh, we can do this. Uh, and those are the words of faith and trust, not words of arrogance and overconfidence. They're words of faith and trust because of God's promises. Uh, Joshua and Caleb were the minority in this group of spies, and uh, most of them were of the persuasion that we read in verses 31 and 32 there. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against these people, for they are stronger than we are. And you want to go, yes, yeah, so God's stronger than they are. But, so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land they had spied out. Words of unbelief. 
And sadly, it wasn't only the spies who lacked faith. Listen to the response of the people in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or, or would that, we, that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You want to give like a total like face palm at this point uh, until we look at our own lives and realize, yeah, but th this is a mutiny. They're like, let's replace Moses. Let's rebel against the captain of the ship. Uh, and worse, they're saying not only do they want to mutiny, they want to go back to slavery because they thought that would be better. Man, it is such a great picture. So as Moses and Aaron are quick to point out that their rebellion is against the Lord, um, they don't want to be a separate people. They don't want a separate land. They don't want to bless the nations. They do not even seem to want God's presence. They are rejecting everything that God has promised to give them. When somebody promises you something and you reject that promise, you are rejecting them as faithful. Uh, so they, this is a rebellion against the Lord. And... Uh, it's worth reflecting on the roots of their sin here. And again, our own sin. The constant connection between their discontentment, their dissatisfaction, and their own sin. Their complaining, their grumbling, uh, reveals an underlying spiritual state. Uh, the people were given supernatural food. They, don't have to, they didn't have to work for it. They've been miraculously rescued from Egypt without having to fight a single battle. They have a faithful leader. They have God's law given to them directly from God himself. Uh, and, and it's easy to see how they've been blessed and how unbelievable their complaining is. But how often do we have the same kind of attitude? Sinful dissatisfaction like this, this, this discontent, tells us more about our souls than our circumstances. Uh, and beware of discontentment. Uh, what are some of the results of all this discontent? Well, when it's complaints at hardships, God sends a fire to burn the camp in chapter 11. When it's complaints at food, God sends a plague in chapter 11 as well. When it's Miriam complaining, God sends leprosy on her. When it's a total lack of trust in all of God's promises, Yahweh says, enough. His wrath is kindled against the people. And then you can see how he uh, protects Moses and protect, pronounces his judgment against the people. In verse 14, 10 through 12, it says, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. That's Moses and Aaron. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Can you imagine that? Let's kill him. And then, boom, God is there. And you're like, uh, he said it. He said it. I mean, I can't imagine the terror that would come over me if I'm talking about stoning God's given leader. And then God himself shows up. I mean, that would be scary. 
And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So just like we saw with the golden calf debacle back in Exodus, God is ready to blot them out. You know, chapter 10. Man, they're excited. They're obedient. They're getting ready to move out. They're trusting God and his promises. And now at a sign of hardship, let's just go back to Egypt. God's not faithful. Let's kill his leaders. Uh, and we think, how could they be so discontent? That's why Paul wrote in Philippians, you know, I've suffered famine. I've, I've gone through abundance and all of that. When he's talking about, I have learned to be content with where I am because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The context of it, if contentment were natural and easy, we wouldn't need the strength of Christ to do it. So we look at the Israelites and like, oh, what fools. Well, they didn't have the grace of God and the Holy Spirit dwelling in them like we do. So then the question then becomes, what's our excuse uh, when we are discontent, when we're dissatisfied with our station in life? At least they had the excuse they didn't have the Spirit of God giving them the grace to be content. But we do. So we see all of this because of the lack of faith in God's promises. And it's here that we have another opportunity to see the ministry of Christ that this is pointing toward to as Moses again um, pleads and intercedes for the people. I mean, these are the people who just said, hey, Moses, we're going to stone you to death and replace you because none of us like you. And God says, hey, Moses, I got this. I'm going to blot them out. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then Moses says, Lord, Lord, don't. Uh, you know, Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, Christ going to the cross for our sin, offering through his work forgiveness for our sins. Such a, an incredible picture of Christ here. And again, Moses' appeal to Yahweh is based on God's glory and fame, uh, not on the merit or worthiness or deservedness of the people, because there is none. It is all based on God's glory and fame. And as a result, like before, God forgives them and doesn't destroy them. This doesn't excuse the fact that they showed a great lack of faith and they were grumbling and complaining against him. So in verses 21 and 23 of this chapter, chapter 14, God says, But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. So God forgave, but we see there are still consequences. Just like with David, when Nathaniel confronted him on his sin with Bathsheba, and David repented, and Nathan the prophet said, God has forgiven you, but your son from this will die. There is forgiveness, but still consequences. So here, what do we see going on with God's promises? And we see that his punishment actually preserves his promises. Uh, now, on the surface, it would seem as though his punishment is breaking his promises, because now 
these people are never going to get God's land, God's place that he promised to Abraham. But uh, we got to remember that back in Exodus, God declared to them that they would only be blessed if they kept his covenant and obeyed. Remember, this was the Mosaic covenant. And if they did not, they would be cursed. So again, God is actually keeping his promise. He promised if you disobey, you, there will be consequences. There will be discipline. There, there will be cursing upon you. There are promises of his judgment. But we see again that God's word is to always be trusted. Uh, not just the words that we like, but even the words we don't like. So the Israelites could not take lightly their unfaithfulness. They could not presume on God's favor because God had always promised to punish their lack of faith. So when, when God passes judgment, they couldn't go, that's not fair. They knew the consequences. Again, it makes us go, why would they do that when they know the consequences? Yeah, we need to look in the mirror more often, I think. <laughs> At least I do. Uh, but what about the Abrahamic promises? Remember, this was the Abraham or the Mosaic where he said, keep this covenant and you'll be blessed. Break it, you'll be punished. But what about the Abrahamic promises? Uh, where are we in relation to these? Well, God's people, it seems at this point as though God's people are no more. He's saying they will not enter the promised land. He says, not one of them will see the land I promised their forefathers. Nevertheless, if you jump down a few verses from verse 23, where he said not one of them will see it, in verse 31, we see that God is still going to uh, keep this promise to his people. He says, as for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I'll bring them into the land to enjoy what you have rejected. Kind of a, a very ironic twist there, where he said, you know what, all of you that could have gone into this land. You were worried about your children being taken. As a result, you will not see this land, but these children that you said would be taken from you, they will come into it and enjoy the land. Uh, there is always hope with God. And the promise place is still just about in sight, um, but the land would not be inherited by the faithless. In verse 25, we see maybe one of the most depressing verses in the whole book of Numbers, uh, where he says, Turn back tomorrow, set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. In other words, go back where you just came from. Turn away, go back. And Hebrews 3, as we've seen, as we've talked about, Hebrews is one book that constantly is pointing back to all these passages, helping us see um, the foreshadowing of these things. And in Hebrews 3, 12 through 19, it says this, uh, applying this directly to us. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? 
And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So the writer of Hebrews is taking this incident and applying it directly to us, that unable to enter his rest because of disbelief. Uh, so it's important, important to point out the, the serious warning here. It's telling us that we can be exposed to a whole lot of grace and a whole lot of sound teaching of God's word and still fall away because we lack faith. So we can come to church for decades. We can know the Bible inside and out. We can be a leader in the church. We can be a pastor, a missionary. We can enroll in a two-year school of ministry and still miss heaven because it was never mixed with faith. You never believed. Remember, this is not about what we do. This isn't the Mosaic promise. This is the Abrahamic promise. Belief. Not law, but belief. Now, we could say a lot more, um, but encourage you to examine the passage, uh, meditate on it. And a key application is that you must have faith. You must persevere in faith until the end. Don't let sin and unbelief deceive you, lead you to make a shipwreck of your faith. So, you're not in heaven yet. Persevere in faith. And praise God, we know that the reason we persevere is because he preserves. Um, it is by his grace that we persevere as he preserves us in the faith. So this promise of a place for God's people was going to have to wait for another generation because of their lack of faith. But even with this, even with God saying, you know what, turn around and go back. His presence is still with them. He hasn't left them. He continues to speak to Moses in 15 and in chapter 16, in spite of, again, grumbling, complaining on the part of the people, God reveals himself in glory to them in a cloud. Do you realize how gracious this is? Uh, people say the Old Testament, God is this angry God. Yet here in the face of these people rebelling against him, doubting him, he never leaves them. He still leads them and guides them. He was not some angry God in the Old Testament. He was still a grace-filled, incredibly loving God, as he is today. So in this section, we see a little interaction with other people. Although it's noteworthy that because of the Israelite sin, they weren't exactly a blessing to any other nations. Uh, but so far, we've seen that God prepares the people for the fulfillment of his promises in chapters 1 through 10. Then in chapters 11 through 16, uh, we see how the people fail to trust and therefore are punished. But still, that's because God is keeping his promises. And then in the final chapters, we see God's patience with his people in order that his promises will prevail. And so that brings us to... God's patience and the fact that his patience preserves his promises. And we see this in chapters 17 through 36. Any questions before we get into this? Uh, so I think a good question to pose 
Well, a comment and then a question. Um, the comment would be, um, you look at the, the historical narrative of God's people and God leading them to the promised land and their refusal to enter into the promised land. And there, there can be sort of two sides to the coin here where modern application, they were never actually part of God's family. That there was never actual genuine faith that that caused salvation. They they were walking with God's people, but they never were God's people, mm -hmm. right? I think we see that in the church false conversions, mm -hmm. where people appear to be Christians, uh, go through the forms of Christianity, and yet at some point in their life, uh, the reality is revealed. But I think there's a second thing, because they, especially in reform circles, one of the things that we tend to just bounce towards is well they were never really saved you know yeah. so somebody messes up they fall short of the glory of god eh, never really saved i knew it complete schmuck i uh, i think most of the time in our life experience it is closer to uh, there was genuine salvation by grace alone right that so not of our own doing the work of god mm -hmm. and yet because of their stubborn refusal to walk in obedience to the revealed truth of God, their life never enters the fullness of the promise that God has set before us. Uh, all of that, that potential life and blessing and just uh, human flourishing under that umbrella of the grace of God, that they never, they never actually step into that. And so Christians live lives of frustration and futility rather than blessing and increase because of that unfaithfulness. Mm -hmm. I, I think we have to, we kind of need to walk in discernment. Okay, what's really going on? Is there a yeah. whole life pattern that says uh, this person is outside of the faith? Or is there a life pattern that actually testifies this person is a Christian? They're just terrible. <laughs> 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 and I mean, it, we can see either one of those exists. So I, I want to mm -hmm. caution us to be careful. And in fact, I was just updating the notes that that mm -hmm. will be mm -hmm. part of it the next time we go through it. Yeah. So we, we don't just default to one side or the other. The other question I want to ask and have a little discussion on is something really interesting happens in uh, God's interaction with Moses, where he says, I'm, I'm going to destroy these people and I'm going to make this nation. I'm going to keep this promise uh, that I made to Abram through you. So get out of the way. Let me let me knock them down. And Moses argues with God, and it appears that God relents. Only we have a giant problem in mm -hmm. that uh, God is immutable. He does not change. So what's happening there? Perfect. That's yep. a good one. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that's a bad one that's a bad one <laughs> so pointing to Christ as mediator how does mm -hmm. how does this situation do that yeah yeah ever lives to make intercession on behalf of the saints absolutely 
who outside of that stand to face the wrath of God. Anything else going on in this? <laughs> That's mm-hmm. a little scary. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think foundationally, um, and I, I just popped up a bunch of scriptures here. Malachi 3 6. I am the Lord, I do not change. That's why you and your descendants are not already destroyed. That's mm-hmm. a great verse. Uh Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. In other words, God doesn't, he he is impassive. He he doesn't have passions when it comes to his people or the world or even our sin. Like he wasn't in a good mood until we sinned and now he's ticked, right? Uh, So he knows the end from the beginning. Psalm 102, verse 27, but you remain the same. Your years will never end. Lamentations 3, 22, because of the loving devotion of the Lord, we are not consumed for his mercies never fail. So looking at immutability, uh, looking at that God reacts and interacts with us uh, in, in light of his eternal plan, not in light of our momentary wins and losses. Uh, I think we have to acknowledge that part of that was a little bit of education from Moses. Uh, It was a testing of his humility. Moses writes of himself uh, that he was the most humble man that ever lived. (laughs) (laughs) Which is (laughs) awesome. (laughs) And also that it must be true because it's Mm -hmm. scripture. Uh, But it, it was a test of that. Like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. I think we can do better. Uh, it was also a dire warning of the consequences of sin, which John was talking about. That, uh, and Jonas mentioning that he he has numbered these sins, and yet in Christ he has chosen not to count them <clears throat> against us. Mm-hmm. Um, oh Lord, if you've numbered our sins, who can stand? Right. Mm-hmm. That said, from the perspective on the other side of the cross, because for the sinner they will not stand. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, I, I just wanted to. Uh, touch that just for a second because I, I think I think sometimes we read by those things and we don't think into them very deeply or we think into them wrongly like mm-hmm. oh man thank goodness Moses changed his mind uh, <laughs> but just like our prayer today God has not only ordained the end from the beginning he's ordained the means of that so uh, he called Moses to intercede for the people he called us to pray and intercede in situations, and ultimately he placed Christ as intercessor. Mm-hmm. And it underscores the need for an intercessor. If there is no uh, danger of wrath or judgment for our sin, we don't need a mediator, we don't need an advocate, an intercessor, a savior. So God was making it very clear that the Israelites were in danger. They needed an intercessor. Yeah. Uh, again, that pointing forward to to Christ, not just 
that Christ would be our Savior, our intercessor, our mediator, but the fact that we need one because we're in peril straits. Yeah, we saw it in Exodus. Yeah, and I think this this account even more points to to Christ because in that first account they had done nothing against Moses, but he still mediated. In this one, this is right off the the heels of them saying, "Moses, we're going to kill you. We reject you. We're going to kill you." And he still stands in the place of mediator. That I mean, it really is an amazing yeah. picture. Also, uh, looking at attitude, I love that it has an attitude is the preservation of God's name. Well, yeah. That should be our utmost as well, the preservation of his name and his glory is mm-hmm. more important than anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really points to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, in his high priestly prayer. Um, here he is. He says, Father, the hour has come. He's praying, you know, it's it's time for me to die. And the first thing he says is, glorify me as I have glorified you. Uh, that's the first thing on Jesus' mind when it comes to him being a mediator, him standing in our place. May you be glorified. It wasn't, um, Father, the hour has come. Please save all those people. The first thing was the glory of God. Please get me out of this. <laughs> Please get me out of this, yeah. Yeah, it was the glory of God. That's a really good point, Kareen. <laughs> All right. Good discussion. So, verses or chapters 17 through 36, we're seeing that his punishment preserved his promises. Now we're going to see that his patience preserves his promises. Uh, and... You'd think that his punishment and his justice would have been enough for the people to go, yeah, we're, we're not going to complain anymore, Lord. Uh, but as we begin this new section, uh, we see that God's people continue in their sin and disbelief. In chapter 17, the people are misrepresenting what God says. Um, they're saying, hey, everyone who comes near, who comes near the tabernacle of the Lord will die. Well, that's not true because we saw in Exodus all the things God put in place for the people to be there at the tabernacle. Uh, You know, the sacrificing and all of that. Uh, Then in chapter 20, we discover that not even Moses is immune to this sinful dishonoring of the the Lord uh, since he seemed to have a little bit of an anger problem, which, man, if you're dealing with those people, I don't know who wouldn't. Uh, But he strikes a rock. He hits it rather than speaking to it as God told him to do. And so as a result, um, Moses receives the same punishment as this generation of Israelites. Uh, You know, he he is told, you will not enter the promised land. And sometimes that seems kind of harsh. I mean, this one instance, and he doesn't get to go to the promised land, but remember back when we were talking about Nadab and Abihu, that God said, I will be sanctified, glorified before my people. Remember, Moses was a leader. He was the leader. He was the mediator between God and the Israelites. 
and he, as a leader in front of the nation, disobeyed and dishonored God. So we're in the school of ministry because developing you into leaders. So keep that in mind. We are held to a much stricter judgment because as we portray and display God, that is how people will relate. So here's Moses, this one instance, and he receives the same, the same consequence. So keep that in mind that as leaders, we have an incredible privilege to minister to God's people, but we also have an incredible responsibility to make sure that God is glorified and sanctified in and through what we do. So in Numbers 21, we're back to the heart of their discontentment. Uh, in verses 4 and 5, it says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Imagine that. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Again, the same thing. For there's no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. Uh, and so there they are again, grumbling against Yahweh and against Moses about the same things they grumbled against before. Uh, and as always, the sin cannot go unpunished. Remember, we looked back in Exodus where God says, I will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. Verse 6 says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And I've always wondered that phrase, fiery serpents. Did it mean that their bite was fiery, or was it like fire snakes, like going through the camp? Uh, just dragons. dragons. Yeah, it's just an interesting phrase there. So I think that anything I say will be speculation. So let's move on. So, <laughs> so the people repent. They seek an intercessor, Moses, uh, to go to God to plead for mercy. And again, here is this pattern that we see not just throughout the book of Numbers, but basically throughout most of their history. The people sin. God displays his righteous anger. There's a need for a mediator. There's a need for God's patience. Time and time again, we see this pattern, not just throughout the book of Numbers, but throughout their history. So how will God's patience be seen in this example? Well, in chapter 21, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So how does looking at a snake on a pole cure you of a snake bite? Do you think that'd work today? Oh, of course. Absolutely. Um, more to the point, what is, how is this applied? How is this any kind of foreshadowing? Uh, obviously, this isn't your normal medical cure for a snake bite. This is what we call in theology a miracle. That's a theological term, miracle. So Yahweh, in his patience, incredible patience, never-ending patience, is supernaturally healing these people from the infliction that he sent. But look upon the grounds which he does at his conditions. You have to look at the snake. It's an act of obedience that comes from faith in what God has provided. That's to say, if God has given the snake as the means to the cure, then merely looking at it, as God has said, is an act of trusting God's provision and his healing and his forgiveness of, the, of sins, the, the curing of the consequence of their sin. And 
in the same way we're called again to trust in God's provision for salvation, uh, it was given to us as the one and only way to be saved from our sins. The, the Jesus on the cross was God's design. It was the one and only way given to us. Um, murmuring, disbelieving, distrusting, disobeying, whatever sin it may be, just like the Israelites, that is the only way. If a person seeks to look upon something else for salvation, it will not work. As we see with the serpent on the, the pole, only belief in what God has provided will work. Jesus being provided by God is the only thing that will suffice to rescue us from hell. And of course, Jesus is a greater savior, uh, the way of salvation that God has provided for all who would believe. Uh, and some people are like, when we hear this application made that Jesus is this serpent on a pole, because when we hear serpent in the Bible, we think Satan. So in case you're, there's any doubt there, um, in John 3, 14 and 15, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So it's not just some spiritualizing of this incident that pastors make when they're sermonizing. This is a, a foreshadow that God intended to point us to Christ being lifted up as the cure for our sin. Yeah, it's interesting that... Uh... We're just looking up the Hebrew word there, the uh, the word for the fiery serpent. It's just one word, and it's haseraphim, which oh. the last half, half of that should sound really familiar. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's the root word is seraph, which means uh, fire or burn, and then we find uh, Isaiah six, where mm -hmm. the uh, the seraphim are there around the throne of God, those burning angels, and. Yeah, not huh. not necessarily <laughs> like the work of Satan. This is God's judgment on His people. Yeah. And more dragons than ever. <laughs> <laughs> One more reason to be afraid of angels. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is really interesting. Huh. That's cool. All right. Um. So, looking at these four key promises that we've been looking at, tracking them through uh, numbers up to this point, we are still going to see them in the remaining uh, 15 chapters here. God's people, God's place, um, God's presence. So, God's people, his patience enables them to, even while they're in this wilderness, being basically exiled from the promised land, uh, God's people continue to prosper and grow in size. Uh, it's here within these chapters that we learn about uh, Balaam and Balaam's donkey. Um, a really weird account of, of that. Uh, the promise of future blessing, uh, even as uh, the idolatry and immorality of Moab that we see amongst them in chapter 25. And then by the time we get to chapter 26... We said his people, in spite of all the plagues, fires, and war, are still a considerably sized nation. The second census shows that there were over 600,000 men, uh, which is almost exactly the same number that we had in the very first chapter. So even after everything that has taken place, God is still preserving them as a people. 
He is still preserving them as a people. And then uh, God's place, his patience with his people. I mean, their shoes never wore out. Uh, without In these 40 years, their shoes never worn out. Of course, the old preacher joke is, uh, I'm sure the, the wives all got upset because they never got a new pair of shoes. Uh, but in chapter 27, it's a preacher joke. It wasn't made to be funny. It's a pastor joke. So in chapter 27, uh, we discover that Joshua will lead God's people into the land. Uh, in chapter 32, uh, the first tribes settle just east of the promised land. Uh, and then in chapter 34, God gives the people instructions for assigning the land to the Israelite clans. So again, this isn't just go in and every man for himself. God is saying, this is how it's going to be done. Just as we saw through Exodus and Leviticus, God gave them very detailed instructions in how to live, how to function. He is continuing that here. He's given them instructions for how to divide this land out among the clans. And then in chapter 36, we see special provisions are being made for how the land's going to remain with each tribe. So all of his past promises are now coming through as far as God's place for uh, his people. And then God's presence, God is still with them. In chapter 9, there's uh, what's called the Feast of Trumpets, where the Israelites are to remember God's presence with a whole day of trumpet blowing. Uh, Matt, you played trumpet, right? Mm -hmm. would, that, would your cheeks get tired? I mean, would that be hard all day? It'd be rough. It'd be rough. I've never played a trumpet, so I, I wasn't sure. Uh, of course, I guess with their trumpets, would that be the shofar? Or is that completely different? I don't know. It would have been the shofar, but it's the same basic blowing arrangement. Okay. I guess they probably had a bunch of different guys. I mean, rotation. Yes. <laughs> uh, what of God's promise of blessing to the nations? I mean, you think, okay, God just brought them in and they just drove out all these people who are living there. How are they being a blessing to the nations? Well, if anything, we. We don't see God's people being a curse to the nations. Uh, in chapter 29, the Canaanites and Amorites are destroyed by God's people. And 22 through 24, the Moabites lose their possessions to God's people. And in chapter 31, vengeance is taken on the Midianites. However, uh, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, we this was actually part of a Sunday morning uh, sermon. I don't remember which one of us preached it. Um, about when God gave this promise that said, oh, it was me, uh, the iniquity of the Amorites. I forgot what I preached. I never blame anybody else for forgetting what I preach now. Um, that the, this land that he was promised to Abraham wouldn't be for another 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites was not full yet. So before we think about these poor, innocent Canaanites and Amorites and Midianites and Moabites who were driven out of their land, remember, there are no innocent people. God gave them plenty of time to put on full display their wickedness and their rebellion. So this is a judgment upon them, while also being a blessing and a fulfillment of God's Abrahamic covenant. Remember, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Uh, and so Balaam uh, uses almost the exact phrasing when he says to the Israelites, may those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. 
Uh, so the implication is that the nations who treat Israel generously, who do not reject God's people and his word, will be blessed. And just for any history buffs, I'm not going to go into it, but check out Great Britain's history coming on stage as a world empire, a world power, how they dealt with the Israelites, with the Jews, and then what happened early, mid-20th century, and then what happened to the British Empire after that. It's rather interesting. So, conclusion. The message of Numbers is this. God prepares his people for the fulfillment of promises, but the people are punished since they do not believe his promises. Nevertheless, God's patience sees that his promises will prevail and will come to pass, which, when you think about it, this is a complete reinforcement of the flaming pot and the torch passing between the two cut halves of the animals. When God said, this covenant, when he, when he passed through on his own, he said, this covenant rises and falls on me. This is my promise. And here we see that in the face of Israel's complete disobedience and rebellion, God's patience sees that his promises will prevail and come to pass. Uh, and as God's people today, we face similar problems. We're tempted to question whether God will be faithful. We uh, wonder if God's going to use us in the building up of his church. Uh, we question uh, the reality of heaven. We're in the midst of earthly trials and sufferings and weariness. And sometimes we forget that God is with us. It doesn't seem like he's there. It doesn't seem like he's listening. And it's in those times that we have to hold on to the certainty of God's promises because as we see in the book of Numbers, God's promises will always prevail. Uh, any questions or thoughts as we finish that out? All right. Let's take a four-minute break. Um, grab some coffee, some water, restroom, uh, whatever you need to do, and we will start back up. All right, so uh, picking up now here with the book of Deuteronomy. And if you remember from our overview of everything in our first lesson, what does Deuteronomy mean? Second reading of the law. Second reading of the law, yes. And that actually helps if, you, have you ever heard of antinomianism? Yeah. yeah, this it helps you remember what antinomianism is when you remember Deuteronomy. Nomos is the second reading of the law. Antinomianism, it oh, that <laughs> against the law. So, as we begin talking about Deuteronomy, uh, the high points in the history of a country, culture, human life, um, a lot of times are those points, moments of transition. Um, try to sum up a nation, you'll probably mention the key transitions like the outcome of, of wars, um, the influence of new laws, changes in leaderships. Those are usually the, the things that stand out the most. Uh, summarize a person's life, and it'll probably be the same way. Um, I can't tell you what I was doing on November 16th, 2015, but on November 16th, 2016, we were moving here. So, yeah, it's those transitions are usually the things that stick out, the things that we remember the most. And so as we are wrapping up our survey, our overview of the Pentateuch, uh, we 
we're going to encounter one of the greatest transitions in the Bible, and that's as they prepare to enter the promised land. And while they wait on the plains of Moab, plains of Moab for this long-promised, long-expected day, Moses gives three final exhortations on the people or to the people on God's behalf. Because remember, he won't be going with them into the promised land. And these sermons, these points, these exhortations that he gives them uh, comprise most of the book of Deuteronomy. And again, as we mentioned, the name comes from the Greek for second law. And that's because much of the book echoes the legal codes that we've already seen uh, in previous books here. But even though the name makes it sound like it's just going to be this is a rerun, uh, it's more than just a repetition of commands, mandates, statutes, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's, again, this is about a transition. This is a document of transition. Uh, when it's the last book written by Moses, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, this is, he's, this is it for him. We, we won't see him live again after this. Uh, it's the summation of the covenant God made with Israel in the desert. And it's the foundation for the rest of the Old Testament. So this is a huge document. It's not just like watching a rerun of an old sitcom. This is huge. So for much of the rest of our Old Testament overview, we will continue to come back to Deuteronomy because it is such a, a major book of transition. Uh, when we get into Joshua, it's a key to understanding Joshua. When we get into Judges, it's a key to understanding the book of Judges. Uh, we'll use it to structure uh, when we go to look at First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and so on, so forth, etc., etc. Um, it is absolutely this book is absolutely central to the rest of Scripture. So, what is the context that we see here? So, at the end of Numbers, Israel is on the plains of Moab, just on the other side of the Jordan River from the Promised Land, and so this is around. Sorry, excuse me. 1400 BC. So we've been camped out a lot in the in mid 1400s. Now we're at the end of the 1400s, which is strange to say because it sounds like it's the beginning. But this is the end of the 1400s, not the beginning of the 1400s, because of the way time goes. So this is the end of the 1400s BC, and this, yes. <laughs> I, were they counting down to a certain day? Well, I'm, I'm sure they were counting down, but they sure didn't know when. That's for sure. I wonder what they... I always yeah. thought that was funny. Yes. Yep. Yep. Uh, I guess they'd gotten past year one, which movie references well. But so, yeah. <laughs> I actually haven't seen it, so... That's <laughs> Jack Black, yeah. So I have seen a clip from it, but anyhow, <laughs> moving on. I'm really bad about interrupting myself. So uh, it's around 1400 BC. This is the first generation, or the first generation that came out of Egypt has died. They're gone. The second generation, they are on the brink of entering and occupying Canaan, the Promised Land. Uh, and so, as the Book of Numbers leaves off that's where we pick up with Deuteronomy 
Deuteronomy chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 3, it says, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. I actually have no idea how to pronounce those. It just saying it confidently. This is in the 40th year on the first day of the 11th month. Well, I didn't know how to, present, how to pronounce Moses. I didn't know that one. So uh, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. And so these verses are telling us what to expect, what's about to follow. This is a book of proclamations. This is a book of sermons. Woohoo! But why? If they're, I mean, they're, they're right there. They're at the river. There's the promised land. They can see it. They've been waiting 40 years for this. And now they're stopping at the border to listen to sermons. Now, I know you guys are excited on Sunday mornings to listen to sermons. <laughs> I'm very excited actually this Sunday to hear our wonderful and excellent Avery preach. So, yes, yes, I, we will keep that in mind. Uh, but here they are, they're on the brink of what they've been waiting 40 years for, and now God stops them. And it's because there is so much more to this than it's just a place to live. Uh, they're a nation founded by and on the promises of God. That, that have been sustained by the power of God for hundreds of years. They've been redeemed from slavery. They, they were brought together and made into a nation. They were brought into a covenant with Yahweh. They were given laws, good laws. They were given a tabernacle where God's glory dwelled. So this isn't just about a place to live. Uh, it's The possession of the land of Canaan is the last puzzle piece to come together for them. Um, so it is a fulfillment of all his promises to Abraham. So it, it's more about that than this is just a place to live. This is the fulfillment of a promise made hundreds of years ago to a man. And so they don't get confused and think that all they need is a place to live. That's what this is all about. God uses Deuteronomy. He uses these sermons to renew his covenant with them, uh, to, to complete and finish the puzzle uh, of his relationship with them. So in that sense, Deuteronomy represents uh, the book that future generations turn to again and again to understand who they are and what it means for them to be in covenant with Yahweh. So before they enter the land, they need to know who they will be, uh, or even more precisely, whose they will be. It's not just about the land. It's about who they belong to. That's why Moses in Deuteronomy 29 says, You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people. He doesn't say you're standing here this day in order to enter the promised land. He says you're standing here with the promised land right there in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God ultimately to confirm you this day as his people. That's what it was about. So with that in place, we will look at how this covenant 
actually shapes the structure uh, of the book. And remember that we've defined a covenant uh, as a, a bond in blood, that it's sovereignly administered, that this is God doing this thing. Uh, it's a binding agreement between two parties with terms and conditions. Uh, and as we've talked in the ancient Near East, it was common for rulers to use a covenant to guarantee their alliances. Uh, typically, they were laid down in a document. The terms of the covenant were laid down in a document uh, and then ratified in some type of solemn ceremony like uh, Abram when he cut the animals in half. Uh, it's made with oaths, witnesses, uh, symbolic seal or sign. Uh, and this covenant model is one of the major ways that God chose to deal with his people. Uh, we see time after time, we see the, again, the high point covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, covenants, the Adamic covenant. We see these, these big uh, covenants, but also the ones like this where you're here to enter into a covenant with the Lord. You know, things that we don't often think of as the big covenants because they don't have some famous guy's name attached to it. Um, but this was the model for one of the major ways that God chose to deal with his people. And we've looked at how God covenanted with Abraham uh, to make his descendants into a great nation, that they would occupy the land of Canaan, that God would reign and rule over them when they were in this, remember, God's place, God's people, God's rule, that, that three-point three promise there. Uh, then in Exodus, we saw the obligation to which Abraham's descendants were bound as the end, their end of the new covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Ten Commandments, the laws. Uh, and it was a, actually a very gracious step forward in God's redemptive plan. Uh, it made the people into a nation. So this wasn't just God wanting to lay, about, lay down a bunch of rules for them. This was part of him saying, I am fulfilling my promise to Abraham to make a nation. Not just a bunch of people, but a nation. It ordered them into a nation to reveal God's holy character through his law. And it, it even established the sacrificial system that pointed and prepared the way for us to see uh, the death of Christ on the cross. Uh, and it also put an obligation on the people of Israel, as we talked about last time, to be holy as God is holy with the curse of death if they fell short. And then it's the Mosaic Covenant that's being talked about here in Deuteronomy. Not the Abrahamic Covenant, but the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, and the whole book of Deuteronomy is covenantal in form. Uh, it, it follows the format of a covenant document that you would see commonly used uh, in the ancient Near East. So that the whole structure of the book is covenantal. Uh, it begins with a historical prologue in chapters 1 through 4. Uh, where Moses, in his first speech, recounts God's path, past faithfulness to his people. Uh, in the heart of the book, Moses' second speech talks about the stipulations of the covenant um, that, that bind the people of God. Uh, you have the general commands. We see those in chapters 5 through 11, uh, talking about their exclusive relationship to God. And then the specific commands in chapters 12 through 26 are about how God operates um, or how they should operate as God's people in the land. And then his third speech, his third sermon, he explains the blessings and the curses that are going to come about as the people are either faithful or unfaithful to this covenant. 
And then at the end, uh, it gives a window into their future as the covenant people of God. So as we talk through this today, uh, we're going to walk through this covenant document uh, to understand the exclusive relationship that the people of Israel had with Yahweh. And it was ratified here on the plains of Moab before they entered into the promised land. So as we mentioned, it starts with a historical prologue, which would often be part of a, a covenant um, in that time to say, this is who we are. This is who is entering into this covenant. So chapters 1 through 4 are a view of Israel's relationship with Yahweh to date. The theme that Yahweh has shown himself to be both just and merciful. Uh, just in that he never let their sin go unpunished, but merciful that in spite of all their sin, here they are across the river looking at the land that God has promised them. So Moses recounts the history that we saw in the book of Numbers, um, the people's lack of trust in God's power, God's refusing to let the first generation enter the land, um, the people wandering in the desert for 40 years, uh, and then God's unmerited faithfulness to them and how he provided for them and how he gave them military victory throughout all of their wilderness travels through those 40 years. And the summary of all of this is in chapter 4. In verse 35, it says this, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Uh, continuing on in chapter 4, in verse 39, we pick up, Know therefore today, and lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven, uh, is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Again, as we talked about the other night, there he has no opposites. There is no other beside him. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So the point that he's trying to make here, a perfectly faithful God requires perfect faithfulness to himself. And that's the history. God has been gracious. He is perfectly faithful. He has been gracious to fulfill his promises, to be faithful to those promises. Uh, and that's the charge here. Therefore, follow God alone. Because he is a perfectly... Wow, that smells good. Uh, because he is a perfectly faithful God, follow him. Follow him alone. So what is it going to look like for the people to obey that kind of a charge, perfect faithfulness uh, to God? How, how is that going to look as they do that in the land that they're about to go into? But God tells them by giving them his covenant stipulations in Moses' next speech. Uh, and that's chapters 5 through 11. So we already got through the first sermon. Avery, that's a lot of pressure. See how quick we got through his first sermon? So <laughs> So the covenant duties of the people begin in chapter 5, his second sermon. And it's basically a reiteration of the Ten Commandments. Um, but God makes it clear in this reiteration that his relationship with Israel is not merely about following rules and regulations. 
uh, at the heart of these commandments, we we read this in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Uh, this is the, the, the Shema, which is Hebrew for here. So we see that this isn't just about commands, rules, regulations. It's about love and relationship. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It's about the relationship. So the most important thing for the Israelites to hear is that Yahweh is one God, the only God. And the proper response to him is total, all-encompassing love. Uh, You may hear, I've heard so many sermons and so many articles about uh, this is how you love God with all your heart. This is how you love him with all your soul. This is how you love him with all your might. As if you could say, well, I love God with all my heart and soul today, but not with all my might. But it's okay. As if you could love God with one part of you and not another part, and you still love him with everything. It, yeah, wrong. Uh, it's beca- I think it's because we interpret he, the Hebrew language in 20th, 21st century English. To us, the way we talk, that's three separate things. But with the poetic, picturesque Hebrew language, it's saying, love God with everything you are. It's not three compartments that we love God in different ways in each of those compartments. He's saying, love God with everything you are. So he is the their only God. He is one God, and the proper response to him is total, all-encompassing love, loving him with everything you are. And how is this love expressed? It will be seen in obeying God's commands. Even Jesus said, he who has my commands and keeps them, he is the one that loves me. So his commandments are to be written upon our hearts, uh, which the Hebrews would have understood to be their mind, will, and emotions, their thought life, everything that makes up the inside character of of a person. Again, it's not these compartments. It's everything that makes you who you are. That is what you are to love God with. So if this total exclusive love is at the core of how Israel was to engage with God, then this was simply because God loved them first. Uh, He's kind of like a good coach who won't make his players do something that he can't or won't do. Uh, God isn't saying, you've got to love me with everything you are, even though I don't love you with everything I am. Uh, in verse, in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, it says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God has done all of these incredible things, not because Israel loved him, but because he first loved them. Does that sound kind of familiar? Yeah, from 1 John, we love him because he first loved us. I, I, I feel almost uh, demonic. <laughs> For those of you who are just listening to this, well, we'll let you figure it out. So... <laughs> Uh, 
So, uh, and, and here's where we have a very majestic window into the mystery of God's electing love. That he chose his people not because of anything about them. In fact, you would say he chose them in spite of everything about them. The same way with us. He didn't choose us because of us, he, anything about us. He chose us in spite of everything about us. He loved them simply because he loved them. Uh, it's interesting that God reiterates throughout the Bible his love for us, but he never says why. It's because he does. Uh, and I, I love that because if there is a reason why you love somebody, then what happens when that reason gets blown? So here with God, he doesn't give a reason. It's simply because that's who he is. Therefore, we never have to worry about falling, God falling out. I even hate to use that phrase. But we never have to worry about God's love for us running dry. I'm going to say it that way. And so um, we're going to apply this to our lives. Uh, though we are in a different chapter, and I praise God for that, of redemptive history, love should still be at the center of how we engage with God. Uh, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he quoted this passage. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And like Israel, we need to recognize we can love God only because he first chose and loved us. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. We love God by first tasting of his gracious, electing love for us. And the natural response to that is to love him. The natural response of knowing who he is is to love and adore him. Which is why when people don't love him, it's because... That is the sure evidence they don't know him. For God is a God who, once you know him, you cannot help but love him. You cannot help but worship and adore him because that is who he is. Uh, so as we look over this section of these general covenant stipulations that, that Moses is about to go through, uh, we see that a crucial part of loving God, again, is obeying the first commandment, having no other God but him. Uh, that's why he instructs the people here in this passage to destroy the foreign idols as they go throughout the land, to never forget God's faithfulness so they'll understand this is the God who brought us up out of Egypt. We will have no other gods before him. Never forget God's faithfulness. And then to remember that idolatry is deadly. Putting anything before God is deadly. So it's with these guiding principles of loving faithfulness that Moses goes on to explain um, the rest of the covenant. And that's why we, we have this understanding that this isn't just about rules and regulations. This is about an expression of love for this covenant-keeping faithful God. And so with that foundation in place, Moses then goes into all of the specific stipulations of justice and holiness uh, in the next 14, 15 chapters or so. So Moses starts in chapter 12, verse 1, by saying, uh, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on earth, 
so he is, you know, one thing you're supposed to do when you're studying the Bible is look for the, the purpose of why it's written. Uh, that he makes it easy here because he says why. They're uh, God's nation and God's land. The people were to worship God alone, reflect God's holiness, and represent God's justice. That's the point of all of these chapters. Uh, but in spite of that straightforward purpose, uh, the section of Deuteronomy can also be the toughest to work through. Um, because again, we're looking at it, all these details. Um, again, the whole, I'm going to read through a Bible in the year. Oh yeah, except for Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and First Chronicles chapters 1 through 9. Other than that, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. Uh, so that's, this can be a tough section to work through. And the general principle in this verse we just read is followed by command after command after command covering everything from how to destroy idols, uh, what clean and unclean food is, um, tithes, which is interesting. Tithe means 10%, but by the time they were done giving their tithe, it was about 23.5%. Uh, the animal property and how that's to be handled, national feasts, murder, sexuality. So it's, it's all kinds of incredibly diverse topics with all these stipulations and regulations on governing those things. So how do we make sense of all these laws? Uh, for one, it's helpful when we realize that there is a basic structure in place here that, broadly speaking, uh, the laws follow the order of the Ten Commandments. Oh, okay. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that every sentence in these chapters is directly referring to one of the Ten Commandments. It just means that even this long list of ideas was designed to make it memorable to the people so they could see the rules uh, or could obey the rules in Canaan. Uh, and knowing that structure can be useful, but isn't, that doesn't necessarily tell us everything we need to know to apply these today. Uh, to understand that, we need to take a step back and review the chapter of redemptive history that Deuteronomy is in. As we've discussed already, this period in the Bible sees God fulfilling his promises to Abraham, again, by establishing Israel as a special people. Uh, it's been building up to this. So in order to set the stage for Christ, uh, the promised seed of Eve, God is graciously here setting Israel apart. They're the only nation from whom the Messiah uh, would descend. There was no other. And the fact that Israel is God's covenant nation also means that they're obligated to obey his law, the laws that we're seeing in this section. If, if you remember, we talked about it the other night, that being God's people, yeah, absolutely it was a privilege and something special, but it was not something to be taken lightly because a heavy responsibility came with it. They are to display the character of God. They do that through obeying the laws uh, that he gives them. Uh, and as we go through this, we've got to remember the context. They were given to Israel at a very specific point in history. Uh, it was given a point of history where they were looking forward to the coming seed of the woman, the coming Messiah. We are looking at it from the other side of history that Christ has already come. We are in a different stage of redemption history. 
Uh, but as with Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy also points forward to the coming Christ. Uh, verses 27 and 26, or chapter 27, verse 26 says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. In other words, you don't obey what God has said. You are under the curse. That's not good news for anybody. That if we disobey the law, we are under a curse. Especially when you look at what James said. Uh, if you are guilty in one point of the law, you are guilty of all. If you break one law, you're, you're guilty of all of them. In other words, it doesn't matter what law you break, you have the same consequence. You're just as guilty as anybody. And that means you will be under God's curse. Uh, so back in chapter 21, we see a law pertaining to capital punishment. And it says this, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. But you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And this is the passage that Paul refers to uh, to explain how those who have faith in Christ are freed from the curse. Uh, in Galatians 3, he says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, where cursed be anyone who's, who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, uh, Deuteronomy 27. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Uh, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So Paul is referring back to these passages in Deuteronomy to show us how Christ took our curse upon himself to free us from this curse. So Jesus bore our curse that all of us who fail to obey God will not be under that curse. For those who trust in Christ, the change to our relationship uh, is changed. The, the nature of our relationship to God is changed. The law no longer stands condemning us. Paul goes on to say, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So for Christians... The law is no longer our supervisor. Uh, does that mean we can go ahead and skip over everything that in Deuteronomy and yeah? All right, well let's just skip it then. Uh, of course not. The law is still good. Uh, Jesus saying he came he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, the law still reveals reveals God's character, His flawless character, and it still exposes our need for a savior. Uh, Paul makes that clear later on that, you know, I didn't realize sin was made alive in me when I read the law. It's, in other words, he realized his sinfulness there in the law. Uh, it still exposes our need for a Savior. It still instructs Christians about how to live. Uh, and so how do we apply the law since we're not under the law? First, we need to recognize that the entire law has been fulfilled in Christ. Uh, we talked about how when, when God told Pharaoh, this is Israel, my firstborn son. Let my son go, he said, speaking of Israel. And we saw that Israel failed miserably 
and following the law and fulfilling the law. But here is the perfect son of God who now has fulfilled it in his perfection. He perfectly obeyed the law. And second, we need to recognize that the laws we see in the Old Testament follow into roughly three categories, moral, civil, and ceremonial. Uh, the moral laws are basically permanent and apply directly to us because they aren't limited to the national, ethnic, or historical context of Israel, um, like the one we just talked about, love the Lord your God. Oh, well, that was in the Old Testament, you know, but it's, it's a moral law. It still applies. Um, but the civil laws, moral, civil, ceremonial, the civil laws applied to the political nation of Israel's government, their justice. And then the ceremonial laws dealt with um, how they did things in the temple with the sacrifices, religious offerings, national feasts, those kinds of things. So the moral law still applies to us today. Civil and ceremonial, not so much. Um, the political nation of Israel and the temple system of worship found their, their end point because they were, they were fulfilled in Christ. Um, you know, the, the sacrificial law, the religious offerings, uh, the, the feasts, those were all fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, they're no longer binding on us. So given that the law is fulfilled in Christ and that it divides into those three categories, let's look at three ways we can apply the law today. Well, we should follow the New Testament's instruction regarding these laws first. For example, laws about clean and unclean food, like we see in Deuteronomy 14. Uh, in Mark and Acts, in the New Testament, it teaches that Christians do not need to follow those rules. They are part of the civil law of Israel. <coughs> but there are moral laws that are uh, repeated or even amplified in the New Testament, like do not murder. They're valid for Christians today. Uh, and Jesus even took it a step further when he said, you have heard the ancients said, do not murder. But I say to you that anyone or that you should not be angry with your brother without cause uh, that you are guilty of murder. Uh, so he he takes a step further. You have heard that it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman and lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Uh, so he he takes it even further than what the law commanded. But we have the grace of God to fulfill. Uh, I heard, once heard a man say that grace demands more than the law ever commanded. But unlike the law, the grace gives us the power and the desire to obey what is demanded. So we should understand that these law, what these laws teach us about God's character. Uh, it forbids the Israelites from mixing wool and linen in the same article of clothing. Now you understand God's character, don't you? He is pure. He's unmixed, undefiled. It reminds them about God's holiness and the nation's distinctness from the world. Go Chuck. Go Chuck. So uh, now we don't have to obey the civil law anymore. Uh, now I will say I'm wearing 100% cotton, so I'm pretty good this morning. So hey, uh, we don't have to obey the civil law, but it does tell us something important about God. Uh, and we can appreciate Jesus' perfection because he upheld all of these laws. All, imagine a, an 8-year-old boy or a 14-year-old boy who never rebelled against his parents, who never talked back. It, it truly is unimaginable. It, 
it's unfathomable. Either that or I just have the worst kids ever. But I'm pretty sure it's unimaginable across the board. I think that was Aiden. <laughs> I think that was Aiden. Uh, but here is Jesus. He honored his mother and his father. Always. He upheld all these laws. So even though <coughs> excuse me, some interpretive work may be required, these laws are still very instructive for our lives as Christians. Uh, as the psalmist declared in Psalm 119, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Understanding God's word, God's law, leads us to hate sin. Yeah, the Old Testament is still a great book for us to study. And most importantly, these laws point us again and again to our need for a Savior. Martin Luther said this, The principal purpose of the law and theology is to make men not better, but worse. That is, it shows them their sin, so that by the recognition of their sin, they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace and for the blessed offspring. I love the way he says that. All right, I got to pick up the pace here. Uh, before I do, any questions, comments on what we've talked about so far? There's, as far as I know, there's nothing where Moses himself divides these categories like this. It's simply uh, looking at the, the whole of it and looking at the, the principles that are laid out. <coughs> Excuse me. It's looking at the nature of the laws that we can divide it. One, one thing I think helps is there are a lot of these things that are repeated for us in the New Testament. Uh, and so when these things are repeated in the New Testament, we see that they are still binding. And those largely are what we consider moral laws. They are still binding today. Uh, what we don't see repeated in the New Testament, in fact, what we see ended in the New Testament, um, the clean and unclean eating of animals and those types of things. Um, so I'd say one thing that helps us discern the difference between them is seeing things in the New Testament uh, repeated from this law of the Old Testament that, oh yeah, that, that is still for today. And it's, we also see those moral laws common among civilizations, common among cultures. I mean, it's pretty common among cultures for there to be laws against murder uh, and that kind of thing. And I think that, that goes along where God talks about writing his law upon our hearts, upon our conscience. Uh, but as far as Moses making a clear distinction between moral, civil, and ceremonial, I'm not sure. No. All right. <laughs> in fact, sometimes they're intermixed. Yeah. So to summarize what they said, um, just pick and choose. Really. Pick and choose whatever you want. <laughs> whatever works for you. Go, go with what you feel. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you just have to keep using the interpretive matrix of, is this specifically talking to the ceremonial or civil people of Israel? Or is this all people, all places, all times? And mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Good question. Any other comments or questions? I, I have one. Um, this is just 
out of the lack of study on my own part, um, most likely. Um, I've always wondered why is it, I understand the importance um, and purpose of why everyone that is, that hangs on a tree is cursed. Why is it, is it the action itself of being hung on a tree that they are cursed? Or is it the, the actions that cause them to be hung on a tree is the reason why they are cursed? Because mm. it couldn't be, it couldn't be that one because Christ himself was hung and he had no actions that led him to be so cursed. So why, why is it that we find Deuteronomy, this is the first time I believe that it's talked about, mm -hmm. that everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed? What is it morally that causes that curse to, to exist? <laughs> uh, I would say contextually it's never really borne out in any kind of explanation that I know of. Do you know of a contextual uh, I think maybe simply God again laying the groundwork for that foreshadowing of Christ to understand that he was considered cursed on our behalf um, since there is no context in which God says this is why, um, I'd say it was God again setting up a foreshadow of who Christ would be for us. Yeah. Uh, that would be my best explanation, knowing there's no context surrounding why. Yeah, I think it's, and the only reason why I ask is, is because, like I said, I, I understand its purpose, right, in the foreshadowing mm -hmm. of, right. of Christ. Um, but 95 to 99% of the rest of the things that are cursed. <laughs> It's that, you know, that's written on our hearts. We can, yeah. we can tell the moral implications and feel the weight of sinfulness and the things that, you know, why that, those actions are a curse upon themselves. Right. This is the one thing that I look at and I go, I have no idea. So yeah. I, I think the thing that you just said is actually the answer to your question. Uh, that this was, this was a general Hebrew truism as opposed to God pronouncing... Anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. This was just a, a truism. So all the totality of circumstances, actions, sins that led them to this place. It, so think within the Hebrew understanding of shalom, the, the greeting, whether you're, you're coming or going. It, it was the blessing of living under the peace and blessing of God. And then they're saying, OK, well, this person, general truism, is living outside of that blessing of God. Therefore, it ended them up in this position. And hung on a tree is not, as we kind of imagined it, uh, it is the ultimate um, shame and disrespect at the end. A lot of times, this wasn't how they were killed. This is how they were displayed. So, you know, we, we think about crucifixion as being a, a means of execution. But that was... That was a few hundred years away from when this happened. This was like someone was killed, and then they took um, something, a piece of wood, and they impaled them, usually naked, on a tree. Like, hey, let this be a warning. This is the curse of God. You live like this, you will live under the curse. Yeah. Cursed is everyone, and it you're you're eliminating you know 
ritual burial rites and all, all of the things that, that showed honor because people are made in the image of God. Like, you have so defiled that you are outside of that. And I, I think it's into that context that we see the mm -hmm. foreshadowing of Christ, where it's the mm -hmm. ultimate horrible degradation and that Christ takes on every sin of his people that have come before and then hangs naked on the tree and right. I think it's in that general context yeah. so it's what you said of like uh 95% of it you're like well I, I'm I mean we see that mm -hmm. but I, and I think that's what's happening here as opposed to a pronouncement of dude get hit by a bus fall <laughs> off a roof but don't, don't get, get hung on a tree, tree. that's going to be bad Dang it, I got cursed. Uh, <laughs> I think it's more that it's the general truism of like, this is the result of that and the eternal punishment as well as temporal punishment. Mm -hmm. And like I said, Jesus didn't do those things, but in some <laughs> eternal way, all of our sins were laid on him. Yeah. And God and the father looked at him and treated him as though he was accursed by God my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, so no, he didn't do it, but he stood in the place of those who did. Uh, I think prior I'd, I'd always like thought, okay, so the fact that those who are hung on a tree are cursed is is the means by which Christ w was laid, all, like the sins of the world were laid on him. Because oh, he, yeah. Rather, the sins of the world were placed upon him, which relates to the curse that falls upon him like or being hung on a tree. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So my, my question is with the fulfillment of sacrificial and civil law or partially mm -hmm. from Christ coming and fulfilling the law. From what I've been taught from Bible <laughs> knowledge, is it right or wrong to continue to allow people to do certain things in the temple like Jews who may or may not, or let me rephrase that, who do believe Christ was Christ and he said he was and came and saved the world and all men is it wrong for them to still do for example like uh, their grain offerings and like they, they don't practice sacrificial mm -hmm. ones but like grain offerings and like thankful ones is that right or wrong Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Um, I'd say, I mean, like the peace offerings that are like yeah. thankful. I don't know if I would call it a sin. I don't. It's not necessary, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, if they're doing sin offerings and those kinds of things, okay. yes, I think that's... Yeah. But calling it a sin, I don't know. I think maybe perhaps, I mean, if they are true believers, perhaps that's a Romans 14... Uh, I mean, as long as they're not believing those peace offerings do anything to further their relationship with God beyond what Christ has already done, okay. uh, what are yeah. your thoughts on that? <clears throat> it's that mindset that actually is the determining factor. Okay. So continuation into the, the modern age church, our thankfulness grain offerings now translate into us taking up an offering mm -hmm. on Sunday. Same, same thing. Uh, we're, not, we're not lugging in big bags of grain, but the, the produce of that. You know, and 
financial things. Uh, you see in the New Testament, Paul taking it, and I can't remember exactly who, who all this happens for. There's one time where he takes, is it Timothy? And pays for the purification rites at the temple? Yes. Uh, yeah. There's, and it, is Timothy the one he gets circumcised? Yeah, and, yeah, because they tell Paul, hey, Paul, to make things a little smoother, why don't you do this? Smooth this thing over. Yeah. Uh, so you, you have a New Testament apostle there would have been paying an Old Testament tithe. Uh, but then you also see from Paul when they require later circumcision, and I apologize, the names of these dudes are popping out of my head. <laughs> Was it Titus or one of those guys? And he refuses to Titus, yeah. have him get circumcised. And... So the, the keeping of the ritual thing, where it was seen as salvific, nope, we're not going to have anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. uh, when it is an overflow of thanksgiving, yeah. Right. So, I, I don't know. It, it, there's mm -hmm. no, there again, there's no hard and fast, you know, like we were taught Hezekiah <coughs> six. There was one I had in class, and I was like, you know, maybe I'll not. Yeah, it's I don't feel comfortable with not. It's the more nuanced than that. Fine is exactly what John said. What is the what is the heart of worship that is behind it? It is do I view this as salvific, or do I view this as an act of thankfulness for a salvation that's already been accomplished by Christ? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the New Testament apostles would have lived as Orthodox Jews mm -hmm. the rest of their lives. In fact, Paul is really the one who breaks that cycle, where they just kind of continued in what they would have dressed Orthodox. Uh, they would have even worshipped Orthodox most of the time, uh, which meant all of those ceremonial things. And it, it's not that that ceremonial thing becomes evil and wicked, unless, of course, you view it as earning your salvation. Mm -hmm. Then it's out. Yeah, when Peter and John healed the lame beggar, it was... They, they, they saw him because it says they were going to the temple for the midday prayer. They were still observing those things. Yeah. For our modern day Jews, when you're buying this, a lot of Jews have the uh, Sabbath observed. Right. Not buying it. They're in rebellion if they don't acknowledge Christ as, yeah. as the end of the sacrificial rites. Yeah. And if they are if they would, and they don't, fully keep all the sacrifice, it, like even they have set that aside, which is super interesting. <laughs> uh, they're still in rebellion, like, it, which is important to say because there are some factions out there that, and maybe the book, you guys all read, The, the House for My Name. Mm -hmm. uh, did it mention in there the, the debate that some people view the Jews as a, a second branch of, or actually as the first branch in the church is the second branch. I don't know if it did or not. Maybe that's from another source. Uh, but there, there are Christians who go, well, they're saved in their keeping of the law. We're saved in obedience to Christ. And that's just out. Like, mm -hmm. salvation is in Christ mm -hmm. alone. And therefore, even if they're keeping the sacrifices, they're in rebellion. No, that was good. You led us astray. Hey, while I've got us hijacked, uh, 
Is anybody bringing, did you bring lunch along? Because <laughs> uh, I've got four pizzas here I'm going to order and then go pick up at noon. Okay. Now, four pizzas is not an extravagant amount. Do I need to order more? Is anybody starving to death? Okay. All right. I'm ordering four. Carry on. Yeah, because me, Seth, and Jonas, all we had for breakfast was the buffet. So, good discussion, guys. Uh, by this rate, we should be able to wrap up by 9 o'clock. So, Moses' third speech, Covenant Renewal, chapters 27 through 30. So, he's finished up his second sermon on these stipulations um, that flowed from his, his whole foundation of this being about loving God. He said, this is how that love for God is displayed. And now he is um, moving on to a covenant renewal here. And again, here is the promised land. It's, it is right across the river. He's just talked about God's laws in this second speech, the second sermon. They're realizing God's standards are high. And he demands that Israel, from chapter 26, verse 16, he is demanding that Israel carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, be wholly given over to observing these things. And then we find in chapters 27 through 30 that this total allegiance will come with consequences. Uh, if they do devote themselves completely and wholly to Yahweh, the covenant promises incredible blessings. Uh, chapter 28, 10 through 11 and all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. Uh, and this is the beginning of 14 verses here that outline the blessings that will be Israel's if they are faithful in this covenant. But if Israel does not keep their hearts pure, if they don't stay faithful to Yahweh, this covenant comes with a curse, uh, 70 verses of them. So in chapters 27 and 28, um, the greatest curse of all, exile from the promised land. Uh, chapter 28, verses 36 and 37, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to, no, no, remember, at this point, there is no such thing as a king. Uh, but God knows what he's doing. He knows what's coming. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. So, if we were the people of Israel and we were listening to Moses here, man, be afraid. Be very afraid. Uh, I don't know what the movie that's from, but I know it's from a movie. Uh, the curse, the curses are horrific here. And the blessings only come if we're perfectly faithful. That is why you should be afraid. Be very afraid. The blessings are incredible, but they come with perfect faithfulness. The curses are incredible, 
and they come with step out of line an inch, you know. So it seems that failure is inevitable for the nation of Israel, as we have seen throughout their history so far. That that roller coaster of, oh yeah, we'll be obedient. Oh, look at us rebel and mutiny against God. So it leaves us with no false impressions that the people are going to be able to maintain the demands of the covenant. We've seen it time and time again. Um, but in chapters 29 and 30, Moses tells the people, and probably one of the greatest pep talks ever, that they're going to fall short. Uh, he says in chapter 29, verse 4, To this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. Imagine a co coach giving that prep talk before a game. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, you can't do this. Give it 1%, guys. Because uh, ultimately, the covenant demands a new heart. And it's a heart that only God can give. The people of Israel cannot do it. One of the big purposes of the law that we've already talked about. And so it's at this point in Deuteronomy uh, that actually ends up being a book not about doom, but about hope, actually. Um, God's law and its curses don't stand against the people. But God himself, as the book comes to a close, makes some incredible promises of grace. Uh, his first is to promise restoration for all who repent of breaking his covenant. In chapter 30, he says, And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart, with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So for faithless covenant-breaking Israelites, the curses don't have to be the end of the story. Yes, the curses are horrendous, horrific, but they don't have to be the end. Um, if they would repent and trust God. And this is an incredible message of hope that he gives him, saying, telling them, if you mess up, my wrath will come against you. But that doesn't have to be the end of the story. Because if you repent, I will restore you. And second, and this is amazing, God himself promises to give a new heart to his people. In 1016, the Lord commanded the people to circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Um, he wasn't after just <clears throat> externalities, circumcision of the flesh. He wanted inward transformation. That's why he says, circumcise your hearts. Uh, remember, circumcision was the symbol of the covenant that I belong to God. I am one of God's people. The circumcision, circumcision of the heart saying, God, my heart belongs to you. Everything I am is set apart for you, belongs to you. But in chapter 30, Moses declares that even after the people go into exile for their disobedience, says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. So it's interesting, in chapter 10, he gives the command, circumcise your hearts. When it's made painfully obvious that they can't, God's, it, it said, God says, I will circumcise your hearts. Uh, it's much like that scene in Voyage of the Dawn Treader where Eustace is turned into a dragon, and Aslam tells him to scrape the dragon skin from him, and he'll be made a boy again. And Eustace tries again and again. He peels the dragon skin off, only to find more dragon skin underneath. And Aslan says, 
I will do it for you, but it will hurt. And then as Aslan strips the dragon skin from him, he becomes a boy again. And this is a, that's a picture of this. God says, circumcise your hearts. They fail time after time. And so God then says, I will circumcise your heart. Uh, so it, such an incredible picture here about the, the circumcising of the heart, that he is going to transform their hearts. So question could come up, is the book of Deuteronomy a book of works, a covenant of works, or is it a covenant of grace? Yes. Um, the Mosaic covenant is here definitely, that, that covenant of works. Yet behind it is the covenant of grace that God made with Abraham. Remember uh, when we were looking at Exodus, uh, where it was made the point that the covenant of prom or the covenant of grace was made before the law was ever even in existence. The promise existed before the law. Uh, and so it is still there behind all of this. God will restore them. God will circumcise their hearts. Uh, and the next few books of the Old Testament and pretty much the, the whole New Old Testament is going to wrestle with this. Grace or works? Grace or works? And then in Jesus, we'll see that it's both. It is the covenant of works that he kept perfectly on our behalf so that we might receive by his grace the blessings of his covenant of works. Uh, that's why we are more than conquerors. He did all the work. We reap all the benefits. So even in the centerpiece of this Mosaic covenant, God is pointing to a new covenant that was to come. A covenant that we see Jeremiah talking about when he says that God would bring forgiveness of sins, bring new hearts for the people. Uh, a covenant that Jesus said was inaugurated with the pouring out of his blood. That was when the new covenant was instituted. And so it's not the law uh, that was God's plan A and then the gospel was plan B. Because what did we learn? What did you say the other night, Chuck? God has no plan B. Except, except for John. I, I forgot about that part. So, <laughs> I'm the B team. So uh, this law is part of, part of God's perfect plan. God didn't come up with this covenant of law and go, well, that didn't work. I need to come up with something else. This was part of his perfect plan to set apart a people for him and expose their incredible need for him. It paves the way for a divine intervention uh, that would finally enable true obedience and an incredible new intimacy with God through the redemption that was going to come in Christ that all of this is pointing us to. So as we read this, this third speech, this third sermon of Moses, we should pay attention to the fact that God's concern is and always has been for the heart. Uh, even as Christians, as Matt was talking about earlier, our hearts can be tempted to turn away to other gods. Um, now, how do you respond to this temptation? And we learn that to have a pure heart, we need to depend on God. Listen to Philippians 2, uh, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who works in us to give us the power and the desire to do his good pleasure, to walk obediently. 
God's Spirit is the one who changes us so that we desire to choose life. Uh, and this is the final plea that Moses makes to the people in chapter 30, verse 19, knowing that it is God alone who we may have the power to do something sometimes, but not the desire, uh, like going clothes shopping. Oh yeah, I've got the power, but I have no desire. And there are times where I have the desire, like it would be great to go to the shop and do some, wood, some woodworking, but I have no energy to do it. So we can have sometimes one or the other, but in God, in his grace, he is the one who gives us both of those to walk in obedience to him. So final chapters here, uh, 31 through 34, uh, points to Israel's future. And remember what we talked about at the beginning, that this is a book of transitions, that it's those transitions that stick out uh, in our timelines, in our lives, lives of our nations, life of this nation. Uh, so the people have affirmed God's covenant. They're getting ready to go on into the promised land. And now we see what I can only imagine was both a joyous and kind of a, a sad transition. And that was the transition of leadership um, for Israel. I mean, here Moses is transferring his authority to Joshua and he's getting ready to die. I mean, think of when Queen Elizabeth died and the whole nation poured out. Um, now here's Moses who has led them for 40 years through incredibly trying times. And now he's saying, I won't be with you anymore. But here's one who will be. Uh, the another sense, this close to the book of Deuteronomy, also functions as a great transition to the rest of the Old Testament. Um, the Torah is at an end, but they're also an introduction to the rest of the history and the prophecy that is to come. So this is... Um, not to be melodramatic, this is the end of an era um, that we see here at the end of Deuteronomy. But all of the subsequent books we're going to look at um, show the many ways in which the curses promised in Deuteronomy fall on Israel as they, time after time, display their rebelliousness. Um, but before that happens, God here is offering a preview of their future so they will be without excuse when they fail to trust him. He doesn't send them off eyes closed. He sends them off wide, eyes wide open. And he does that through the Song of Moses in chapter 32. Uh, and when we study the Old Testament, this is a great chapter for us to keep turning back to, this, this song in Deuteronomy 32. Because of time, I'm not gonna. We won't read it. We'll we'll keep going. Um, a lot of the ways, it's a sneak preview for everything that's going to be coming after this. Uh, he looks at to the future of Israel and says, "You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth." He says, "This is their future. You deserted him. You forgot him." Um, but their unfaithfulness isn't going to be the last thing. After exile, after discipline, after curse, uh, it says, God will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. And again, such an incredible picture here because as we've seen through uh, Exodus and Leviticus, the priests were always offering sacrifices for atonement. But who here is making atonement for his land and people? God is making atonement for his land and people. Again, a great picture and promise of God being the one who atones.
uh, who might think that Deuteronomy, with all its laws and covenant curses, spells destruction, for thy doom has come upon, the, upon God's people. But really, the tone here, um, as he blesses the tribes in chapter 33, and uh, even as he, he breathes his last and dies in chapter 34, it, it's, the, the tone here is one of hopeful expectation. God will make all the wrongs right. God will atone for his people. The covenant will not be the last. A new one is coming. And that's the hope that then is propelled forward in the rest of the New Te- our Old Testament. And there's one last thing in these verses that really should serve to strengthen our hope uh, in our very faithful covenant-keeping God. And chapter 18, verse 18, says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. He's talking to Moses. So when he says a prophet like you, he's meaning a prophet like Moses, uh, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So God is promising the coming of a future prophet who will speak only the words of God. And then chapter 34, 10 through 11 after Moses has died, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. So they're still waiting for the promised prophet, but God is faithful in his promises. That's why they can wait with hope. Uh, they were waiting with hope, a prophet who knew the Lord's face, a prophet who backed up his message uh, with miracles. It was a, a hopeful waiting. So the promised prophet, of course, we know is John the Baptist, Jeremiah, <laughs> John the Baptist, Jeremiah Jesus. Oh. Oh. <laughs> the one time a Sunday school answer was the right answer. <laughs> so uh, he is... Uh, the word of God who became flesh. Uh, He spoke all that the Father gave him to say, and he confirmed his message through miracles. So just as Moses was the mediator of the covenant in Deuteronomy, the greater prophet, the greater mediator, is Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, with his blood. He bore our curse, hung upon a tree, and we received the eternal blessing that only he deserved. We are more than conquerors. Um, real quick, any any closing thoughts or questions on that? When do you suppose those last few verses were written? Because oh. God is no prophet. Well, yeah, he only died ten days ago, so give me a break. That is funny. There has not arisen a prophet since him. Uh, that's a good question. That is a good question. Um. I'd say, but it's one that I can't answer. I can't answer it. Um, I don't know. That's an answer. Uh, any thoughts, Matt, on that? On I, I never really thought about that, but that is a, a good question. <clears throat> Did you guys go over the Old Testament survey who wrote the Pentateuch? Yes. Okay. And talk some about uh, how there were Moses basically wrote it there were some others who helped since well he was dead at this point yeah, uh, yeah so um, that's a really interesting question I'm not sure I've heard anybody pose it quite like that before mm-hmm. 
Uh, a lot of times it's just kind of assumed that Joshua, who took up the helm, put the tag on the end of it. Yeah. Uh, and yet it almost seems like like that's a little bit further down the road. But I, I think it's as long as we keep it in the perspective of we're going to do what Jesus did and attribute authorship to Moses, then it's okay to go, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know who wrote <laughs> that last little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's someone who clearly has a bit broader and authoritative perspective on Israel's history and trajectory to go, man, there hasn't been anybody who has looked at this humility that Moses wrote that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thought of that. That's a good, good question. Good, good observation. Yeah. How did you get Caleb? It was, yeah, it was, it was Caleb. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll take just a. a sh- well, seven, eight, nine. That was. Oh no, seven, eight. Yeah, we'll take just a short break. Um, that's eleven thirty. You said the pizzas let's, would be here. Let's do a short break. Yeah. You guys start back up on the next lesson. I'll go pick it up. Okay. And then we'll just break in the middle of the lesson when it gets here. Sounds good. Are you pausing the recording in between? I forgot to hit stop. When I get back, we'll just find a little paragraph break. Hit pause on there. And Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Sorry, what? Hang it. Joshua and Judges. We continue our journey and we leave behind the land of the Torah and we venture forth into the land that is often referred to as the historical books. And if you look to your left, you will see the book of Joshua in its natural habitat. So uh, these historical books uh, comprise of everything from Joshua all the way up to Esther. I just realized what you're doing. <laughs> he said, if you look to your left, you'll see Joshua and Esther. So all the way up from Joshua to uh, the book of Esther right before uh, we get into the writings. So and they tell the stories of the next thousand years of Israelite history. And as we have already seen that similar pattern all the way through all these histories, there's ups and downs and twists and turns uh, with the Israelites. Uh, as much like in our lives, uh, sometimes they succeed at obeying the Lord while living in the land. And at other times they fail miserably. Well, maybe like your life. I, it's not like my life. But uh, the book of Joshua was probably written by Joshua himself. Uh, and it was probably within the first 15 years of the 14th century. In other words, the, the 1300s BC. So at the start of the book, uh, the nation of Israel, it, it leaves off right after Deuteronomy. The nation of Israel 
is outside the land of Canaan on the opposite side of the Jordan River. But by the end of the book, they have taken and occupied the land. And so we can summarize the book by saying, Joshua is all about conquest. So that's the book of Joshua. It's all about conquest. (laughs) So uh, they enter the land, they take the land, they possess the land, and accomplish rest in it. So uh, the book of Judges picks up right where Joshua leaves off. Israel's taken the land, but now the question becomes whether or not they'll be able to keep it. Uh, In Joshua, they took it. And judges, can they keep it? Um, They come under a lot of pressure from surrounding nations. Uh, That pressure is to syncretize their religions, to mix their religions, to follow after false gods, um, to do things to dishonor God. And the events in Judges take place over a period of about 350 years um, from the time Joshua dies until the time of their first king, somewhere around um, 1050 BC or so, uh, when they take their first king. And we don't know who wrote Judges, uh, but we think it was probably written shortly after uh, the last events of Judges were recorded, somewhere probably mid to late 11th century uh, BC. So what are some of the major themes we see here? Uh, There are some differences and some similarities between both books, and we'll look at it by drawing out the major themes of them. Uh, As we might expect, because they're going into the promised land, the idea of land is big in both books. Joshua, again, as we said, is all about taking it, and Judges is all about keeping it. And closely related to that idea is the idea of rest. Uh, Again, this is enter into my rest. This is... This is the goal for God's people. They have been promised a nation centuries and centuries, or promised a land centuries and centuries ago, and now their goal is to rest in the land that was promised to them. And Judges or Joshua ends positively uh, in this, uh, with God's enemies at bay, God's people enjoying fellowship with Him in the land. But then, by the end of the book of Judges. It's the reverse. God's people start with rest, and then they begin to lose it uh, throughout the book of Judges. And then both books also reflect on trust. Uh, In Joshua, God's people must trust Joshua, their their saving leader, their replacement for Moses, uh, if they're going to take the land and enjoy rest in it. But in Judges, they are constantly in need of a leader, a savior, to retain that which God has given. So in Joshua, the book of Joshua, they have that leader, they have that savior, but in the book of Judges, they're constantly in need of one. So Joshua's theme could be said to be this, trusting a faithful savior to lead God's people to land and rest. The theme of Judges could be said to be requiring a perfect savior to maintain God's people land and rest. So we need to trust a faithful Savior to lead God's people to land and rest. And then we require, we need a perfect Savior to maintain God's people land or God's people's land and rest. So looking at Joshua, 
um, we can divide it into four chronological sections, uh, four periods of trust for the Israelites. Uh, in chapters 1 through 5, we see that the Israelites have to trust God as they enter the promised land. Um, they start off in chapter 1 confidently trusting God in the plains of Moab in contrast to their parents who 40 years before on the plains of Moab distrusted God in, in that same spot. But here they are confidently trusting him. Uh, but they have to depend on God as they once again spy out the land. Uh, and then finally, as they cross the Jordan, which we're going to see in chapters 3 and 4, uh, they are entering the promised land. And then we discover they have to extend that trust to God um, as they begin war, as they begin to take the promised land. Chapter 6, the walls of Jericho famously fall at the trumpet blow uh, and the shouting of the people of Israel. And after that, the Israelites start to march south through the land, conquering nation after nation. Um, chapter 7 and 8, it's the people of Ai. Chapter 9, it's the Gibeonites. Chapter 10, it's the Amorites. And then after all of that, in chapter 11, they start to move north. And they de defeat all the northern Canaanite tribes. And then chapter 12 ends by reviewing all the land that they have taken. So first, they have to trust God as they enter the promised land. They have to trust God through all of the war to take the promised land. And then when all the land is taken, it's time to divide the promised land. And that's what we see in uh, 13 through 21. So after reviewing the land to be in... Yes, sir. Do you know when they found Jericho? It actually had like clay urns of grain in it that were scorched on top because oh. they didn't take anything. Yep. Yeah. So that's one of yep. the ways they knew that it was Jericho because the walls had fallen down and mm -hmm. it had been taken. Yep. Yeah, they all fell down outwardly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it would have been the perfect time to loot but they didn't do any looting. Yeah. Um, yeah, the grain, everything was full, which also shows that it was not a long siege. Otherwise, the grain would have all been eaten. Yeah. Uh, so it gives credence to the fact, oh yeah, this siege of this city didn't take very long, no. just like the Bible records. And it also shows, because some people say, well, this says it happened in the spring, but why were the grain jars full? Because that would have been after harvest in the fall, except we're on the other side of the world. Um, and the harvest there happened in what we would call the spring. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's interesting what some jars full of grain can tell us, yeah. uh, gives so much credence to, uh, what God says. So thanks for bringing that up. So in chapters 13 to 21, uh, they review the land to be inherited in both the East and the West. And then the land is then shared by the 12 tribes as promised and according to what God said they should do back in Deuteronomy and how he said it should be divided. And then as the book of Joshua closes out in chapters 22 and 24, or through 24, we see the need for Israel to remain faithful as they accomplish the promised rest. So in these last three chapters, God's people reflect on how they're to enjoy the rest that he has given them from war and wanderings and enemies, giving them the rest they have been searching for. All right, with that fire hydrant drink of an overview, uh, let's get back to our theme sentence for Joshua. 
trusting a faithful Savior to lead God's people to land and rest. So tr they were trusting as God's people. Joshua 1.5 says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So here are God's people on the edge of the promised land. Excuse me. And the call, uh, as we famously know, is to be strong and courageous, uh, to trust that God will give the Israelites the land. And what is the reason for this confidence? Is it because Joshua is in an incredible, incredible war? Uh, is he great at logistics and strategy when it comes to war? Is it because he's such an inspirational leader? Is this why they can have confidence? No, God says it. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. It's because the same God who is with Moses will be with his people still. That's the reason for their confidence. Now, Joshua might have been great at uh, strategy and logistics and an uh, inspirational leader, but we've seen people who are great at that before and have lost. The reason Joshua, no man would be able to stand before him, is because God was with him. So this idea of trusting their identity as God's people uh, is further encapsulated when the people are circumcised at Gilgal as a sign that they are God's people. And then it's again reiterated later in chapter 8 when his covenant with his people is renewed. So again, we see constantly uh, that this covenantal relationship is, is God's model. We see it repeated time after time after time, God renewing his covenants. So both these events happen before they fight anybody in the land. They're reminded of their status as God's people. That's what gives them confidence they can take all this land. Again, not because there's some awesome army, but because they are God's people. Uh, and so this idea of confidence center God's land because, uh, you know, hey, we're God's people. It finds its fulfillment in passages in the New Testament, like 2 Corinthians 1 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We are now God's people. Uh, we are God's people because we are in Christ. Because we have the new seal. Not circumcision, but something greater. The spirit of God dwelling in us. So we can have every confidence that, that the Israelites could have had. That we will enter God's ultimate land. That we will enter heaven. Again, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. So they had to uh, trust as God's people. They had to trust in God's faithful Savior. Um, the people are God's, but it's Joshua that he chooses to lead them into the land. It doesn't mean they're Joshua's people. They are God's people, but he's choosing Joshua to lead them. Just like this is God's church, but he chooses Pastor Matt to lead us. So he must meditate on God's word day and night, Joshua here, and be careful to do everything in it. That's what God tells him to do, uh, that he needs to meditate on God's word. He needs to be careful to obey it. Uh, 
And because of this, God's people trust Joshua or should trust Joshua. And it shows that they do in chapter 1, verses 16 and 8 through 18. It says, And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do. <laughs> we know how that turned out. Uh, and wherever you send us, we will go, just as we obeyed Moses in all things. <laughs> oh, how short the memory gets. Um, can you imagine? They, they say to Joshua, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. And Joshua goes, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. um, only well, it may. Was a different it was a different generation, yes. Uh, he says, only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Um, so Joshua then does lead them faithfully into the land. Uh, in contrast to Moses and all the disobedience that went on in the desert, this new generation of God's people do obey Joshua and they trust him as the one who will obey the Lord and who will ultimately save him. So yeah, you're right. It, it's a different generation. Uh, so. Then you know what Joshua means? God is with you. Yeshua. Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Yep. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. So it's a song. Steve Green sang it. I'm old. All right. <laughs> Again, the New Testament parallels here shouldn't be difficult for us to make. Uh, Joshua, like Moses, prefigures or foreshadows God's ultimate Savior who will be to come. Uh, he's even named after Joshua. Um Yeshua, that was Jesus' name. Uh, the one who perfectly obeys God's law and consequently brings us into the new heavens and new earth if we obey him. Okay. I've got some very dear friends of mine who correct me whenever they do this and say Yeshua. Oh, uh-huh. Um, what's, what's the thought there? Um, it's just different languages. Uh, Hebrew, yeah. Aramaic. Yeshua, um, I'd say it's a misunderstanding and a misapplication, even a twisting into a legalistic mm -hmm. form, yeah. the, the grace of God. Because, yeah. uh, I mean, that really, what does that do for people who, who don't read Hebrew or speak English or Aramaic or Greek? Yeah, yeah it, it is a complete nullifying of the grace of God. Yeah. In Dutch, uh, there's two words, gut means God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Gut, like G-O-T, but the interesting. Yeah. Anybody know what that is? <laughs> <laughs> and then there's ha, the ha. Ha. H-A, I know what. I was a Jew. 
I know uh, in Jamaica, he's Yah, which is for Jehovah. So, ha, yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. So, interesting. Yeah, I, I can't find anything in Scripture that says that we have to pronounce the name of Jesus correctly to be saved. Because actually saying Jesus is pronouncing his name correctly, <laughs> um, depending on the language. Uh, but yeah, technically, Yeshua, or Yeshua. Uh, I have some friends who named their their kid uh, Yeshua, so because it's it's actually Joshua, um, but interesting. So do they call Jesus Joshua? Yeshua. Just Yeshua. Or actually, Yehu. Yehu, yes. Joy of man's desiring. Yeah, not to be confused with God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ye- Yehu, J E S U. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just kind of weird that you get to that place. Because, I don't know, they may, maybe they see it as, like, God undoing diversification and that being what unity is. Mm-hmm. It's not. That's no. That's not what unity is all about at all. That's uniformity, not unity. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what I kind of stated on that. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, when he says in Revelation, tribes, tongues... Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wow. <clears throat> kind of feel sorry for them. Because. Uh, yeah, that that's a constitution, not really a clear example oh. of what you're saying. Whoa. That's been said by the church before. Seriously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The Catholic Church has been here for a decade because of that. Therefore, you cannot be saved. Oh. You cannot speak or hear the word of God. And by the hearing of the word, you are saved. They took that literally. That's been demographic people for years. That's interesting. Oh. Oh, some blind people can't be saved either. Wow. Somebody shall smite them with the backhand of common sense. <laughs> That's wow. That's infuriating. Oh, it is. All right. Um, so, good question. Uh, trusting God for land. And this is the major theme here in Joshua. Uh, remember that the significance of the land is a major concept uh, to grasp hold of because the land of Canaan and all of the theology around it is bound up in what the Garden of Eden was. <laughs> and what the new heavens and new earth are, are going to be. What happened to being fair? He always had to bring something for him. <laughs> I, oh, uh-huh. If he decides not to bring something for y'all, I knew that. <laughs> I believe she actually would have. <laughs> um, so uh, the significance of this land is a, a major concept to grasp hold of um, because it is bound up with what the Garden of Eden was, the land that God made for his people. And even that is... It looks back to that, which, which then jumps forward to look ahead to the new heavens and the new earth. So we can see the common thread. This is one book, not a bunch of books. It is one book, all pointing that way 
even if sometimes it points back here in order to point back there. So, yeah. So back in Genesis, Eden was the physical location where God's people had fellowship with him. And then the new heavens and the new earth will be accomplishing the same thing. Uh, once again, we as God's people are going to have perfect, unhindered fellowship with him. Yes, sir. Tim, you're going to stay after class and write on a paper a hundred times. I will not mess with Tony. <laughs> and now your name has been recorded for all posterity. <laughs> Tim Miller. Tim Miller. <laughs> so, yeah, look what happens when Matt is gone. So, uh, so what will make the new heavens and the new earth even better than Eden is that the possibility to sin will be completely eradicated. So there will be no chance, no fear of ever being exiled like Adam and Eve. We will never be exiled from the presence of God once we are in the new heaven and the new earth. And again, all of this is pointing to that. So in chapter five, uh, just some quick context real quick. Uh, God's people have crossed the Jordan. They're about to enter God's place for the first time. Uh, but remember how Eden ended up in Genesis 3, an angel with a flashing sword barring the entrance forever. Uh, so it's, is he still there barring the entrance? You know. Uh, and so does Josh, what does Joshua see as he hears, hears God's promised place? It says this beginning in verse 13 of chapter 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for your adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Can you imagine that? That would be awesome and really terrifying. Now I have come. And as we see, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy. Sound familiar? And Joshua did so. I mean, that would be awesome and terrifying all at the same time. So the land of Canaan now is holy ground. Why? Because God is there. Uh, because of sin, there's no right for sinful people to be in it. Hence, an angel's sword met them at Canaan. Uh, and so just as promised in Exodus 23, there's an angel of the Lord who this time does not bar the way to God's place, but actively helps God's people take the land. So in Genesis, we see this angel barring the way into the land God had given and now we see an angel paving the way into the land that God had given. And in case there's any doubt, by the end of Joshua, it, they've got it. Uh, chapter 21, starting verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. 
Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Of that, not one word failed. All of it came to pass. The people are possessions of God's place. They are safely in the presence of God. So between the angel's arrival in chapter 5 and this fulfilled promise in 21, um, what about all the, the blood and brutality and war in between? To receive this land, Israel first had to remove those who already inhabited it. And that's what much of Joshua is about. Um, in chapter 6, verse 21, it says, They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men, women, young, old, cattle, sheep, donkeys. Chapter 11, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So, Again, there's, this wasn't just they waltz right in and everybody packs up their things and leaves and makes room for Israel. It was taken through conflict. So what are we to make of this very violent campaign that we read about within Joshua um, as God commands the Israelites to go to war in Canaan? You know, this is where some people that we mentioned earlier talk about how God is an angry God, a God of war in the Old Testament. It doesn't sound like a gracious and compassionate God. So what's going on here? We've already established God does not change. So we don't see him like this in the New Testament. Well, except we do. Um, but we don't have enough time to, to camp here. But just real quickly, because this is such a major part of the book of Joshua. First, God is not condoning holy war here, telling Christians they should engage in Middle Eastern crusades like the Catholic Church did. Uh, yeah. Rather, Joshua's military campaign is to be understood as a unique event that God commanded at one time in redemptive history. Unique event one time redemptive history commanded by God himself, not the vicar of Christ as the Pope is known. Uh, at the time of Joshua, the physical land was deemed holy by God. I'll, I'll stop there. It was therefore for God's holy people, uh, people who are to be righteous, who are to be just, who are to be loving, who are to be kind, who were to be a blessing to the nations. It wasn't for the Canaanites, who according to Deuteronomy 9, Genesis 15, were a wicked people, and God had been extremely patient. He gave them hundreds of years. And what did they do within those hundreds of years? As he told Abraham, they fulfilled their iniquity. They filled up their iniquity tank to overflowing. And then, uh, furthermore, the physical land is not something that is important after Jesus. Uh, the ultimate place the land looks forward to is heaven. And so the same land picture in Joshua uh, is the same land picture which is there to warn us of the reality of God's impending judgment uh, if we think we can live happily with God in heaven with our st sin still present in our hearts. 
So Jesus is clear that when he returns, he will judge all the nations for their sins, and there will be no place in heaven for the wicked. So consequently, this one-time military campaign of complete destruction and dominance is a foreshadowing of the one-time certain and terrible judgment that's going to face everybody outside of Christ when Jesus returns. Uh, so, yeah, this isn't God condoning some holy war by the decree of man. This is God himself in a one-time unique event in history um, bringing judgment upon nations through his people as he also fulfills his promise to those people through this war campaign. Um, so as we read through this, we shouldn't think that we are any better than the Canaanites were. We also are great sinners like them. So we need to look on this conquest of Canaan uh, and understand it pales into insignificance, really, uh, when compared to the day of reckoning that is coming for everyone. Uh, as a result, we need to be incredibly thankful that when we repent of our sins, trust in Christ, that God forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and that as a result, we will be able to attain the ultimate promised land. So trusting God for, well, any questions or comments or thoughts? And that actually is a perfect example of why this wasn't just about um, them inhabiting the land. Um, one, it was necessary for them to inhabit the land because Jericho as a fortified city also had army that could have come out and then come up behind their rear and wage war. But also, it's because this was um, God's judgment upon them. Um, so one reason they didn't just pass by is because God said, I will destroy them. They, I have given them time, and their, their iniquity is overflowing, so my judgment is against them. So that's why this is a, a double thing here. It is both the blessing and the fulfillment of a promise, but it is also God's judgment upon the people of the nations that were already there in Canaan. Um, so the reason they didn't just bypass it, uh, I think ultimately it was because God's judgment had come against them. That's a good yeah, question. A good question. Any other thoughts or questions? All right.
So uh, they've trusted God to go throughout the land, take the land, now trusting God for rest. So let's look at Joshua 21. Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies in their hands. Not one word of all the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So we read part of this before. Um, notice here <clears throat> how much is made of the idea of rest. In verse 43, it says God gave them the land. In verse 44, it says he gave them rest. Um, they're, they're kind of synonymous in this passage. The land and rest are, are kind of synonymous here. So... What does it mean for Israel to have rest? What does it mean in the scope of God's plan, um, this idea of rest? Uh, in Joshua, we get a couple hints at what it might mean. Uh, in chapter 11, we read that the land received rest from war. In chapter 23, we hear that Israel is given rest from all their enemies around them. So one, rest will be gained through the removal of God's enemies. And to, to answer the question of who are God's enemies and the scope of this rest, um, we can go back to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve have rebelled against God. They're currently receiving their just punishment. But in the midst of it, God says this, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the ultimate enemy of mankind is Satan, the one who tempts man to ruin God's land. And this is why we read Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one. That idea of rest being gained through the removal, or I would say the destruction of God's enemies. Uh, so that's why the whole Bible tells us that the ultimate enemy for everyone is sin and Satan. Um, but there would come a time, and now we know there did come a time, when Satan's head would be crushed by a man, Jesus. So again, in Joshua, we have a, a little snapshot of what an enemyless land <clears throat> and victory for God's people looks like. In 10, 24 through 26, we read, And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And here is something interesting after our discussion earlier. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. That idea of shame, curse, um, being hung on a tree. So in Joshua, this is uh, 
a picture of victory and rest. But we know that the ultimate reality uh, for us is found in Christ. Our victory and rest is found in Christ. Uh, he's the only man who finally crushes the, the head of our enemy, who destroys our enemy. Uh, so again, it is a picture, but a very incomplete picture. And how did Christ do this? By becoming sin for us, by hanging on a tree, just as these kings in Canaan did, what we talked about a little while ago. Uh, that's why Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And when it comes to rest, you cannot rest if you're not trusting. Uh, I had a friend who, in his basement, uh, found some snakes underneath a sofa in the basement where a snake had made a nest. They'd gotten in and made a nest, and they got rid of all the snakes. But he said that when he would go down to lay on that sofa, he just couldn't rest. Because the whole idea that there were snakes under there, did they come back? I mean, he had removed the snakes, but he, he didn't feel, have that sense of rest that was there. Uh, because he, he couldn't trust that more snakes wouldn't be there. So the only way to rest is also to trust. Uh, it's a little something I call trusting. Uh, you cannot have rest without trust. And so the reason we can rest in Christ is because we can trust his faithfulness. We can trust his fulfillment to his promises. So we can, we can trust we can trust and rest in who he is. Sorry, I like things that stick in my head, and so that helped it stick in my head, trusting. So, all right, overview of Judges. All right, actually, we're not too far from being done. We might get done before the pizza arrives. Um, all right. Overview of Judges, we turn our attention to Judges, we'll see if God's people are going to stay in the period of rest again. Before diving into the details, we'll do a quick overview of the whole book. The picture starts off for the book in chapter 1 for the words of Joshua that has already died. All right. Some exclusions <laughs> 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 Yeah, some exclusions may apply. Better, he's not included. So, uh, so five words into the book of Judges, and Joshua's gone already. So he he's not really in this book a whole lot. Uh, it's kind of like, a movie with Steven Seagal called Executive Decision. You know, it's when Steven Seagal was at the height of his action moviness and in Executive Decision, he dies in the first act and he's gone. And I was rooting and cheering because he was gone. I don't like Steven Seagal. But that's what we find here. The action hero of Israel, although is gone, but they weren't cheering like I was with Steven Seagal. Um, did he? I can't remember. He may have. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Joshua's gone. First act, he's gone. Uh, but not only that, with the rest of the chapter, we discover that Israel has failed in their mission to wipe out some certain tribes within the promised land. In other words, they didn't obey. God told them to go in and wipe everybody out. Uh, because again, it wasn't just about having the land. It was also about God's judgment on the people who were there. That's why he told them to wipe them all out. But they didn't. They disobeyed. Uh, and as a result of that disobedience, we find them descending into this constant cycle of rebellion, followed by suffering, followed by crying out to God, followed by God raising up a Savior, 
rescuing them from their enemies, rebellion, suffering, crying out, Savior, rescue, rebellion, suffering, on and on um, throughout the book of Judges. And one thing that's important to note is it isn't just a constant circular cycle. It's a downward spiraling cycle. It's not just a circular thing that's just goes right back to the same place. It's actually a downward spiraling cycle. Um, the, the victory of each judge gets more and more elusive as the book continues on. Uh, Othniel, the first judge, has complete victory. But Ehud, who follows him, has victory only through deception. Then you have Deborah coming along, who has victory, but some of the tribes are cursed. Then you have Gideon, who has victory, but then we see civil war within the land. Then Jephthah has victory, but it's marred by the tragedy of his daughter because of a thoughtless vow. And again, things devolve into civil war. Then along comes Samson. And even though he does great damage, he never actually defeats the Philistines. There's never actually victory. He does a lot of damage, but not victory. So it just keeps getting worse and worse as it spirals down. So by the time we reach chapter 17, uh, we find Israel in the depths of their sin. Uh, chapter 17 and 18 reveal a lot of religious corruption. Like Seth was pointing out earlier, the evidences of child sacrifice within the land. Um, we find a lot of that religious corruption uh, sinking into the Israelites because they did not obey and wipe everybody out. And then chapters 19 and 21 reveal their moral and social corruption. So on all levels, religious, moral, social, they are corrupted as a nation. And as the book concludes, uh, can anybody give me the conclusion of the book of Judges? Yep. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. One of the saddest and most well-known conclusions to any of the books in the Bible. Each man doing what was right in his own eyes. Which is why that theme sentence for Judges requiring a perfect savior to maintain God's people's land and rest. This is why. So uh, they desperately require separation as God's people. Remember that separation being that, that be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. That separation, that being set apart, set aside. Um, turn to Judges chapter 1 with me. In case you didn't catch that, the pizza is here. So we're going to finish this first point and then we're going to break for lunch. Verses 27 through 29. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Notice how they didn't do what God told them so they could have some convenience. Oh, let's not kill them all. Let's hey, we can have some forced labor here. 
Let's not do what God said. We got a better idea. So the core problem for the Israelites is that they had forgotten that they were to live separately from the nations. They were to be holy, set apart. They've been told to remove God's enemies from the land, not enslave them. Uh, but as chapter 2 sadly points out, this new generation coming up, it says they did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. So the generation that rebelled in the wilderness died off. There came up a generation that lived in the wilderness and saw the works of God. They came in and took the land, but they weren't completely obedient. And so the generation that came after them did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And I think that's why so many Psalms talk about, let us remember what God has done. Let us tell it to our children because this generation did not know the Lord or the work he had done. Consequently, they live among the Canaanites and then they start to live like the Canaanites. Uh, and this is often referred to as Canaanization, not to be confused with canonization, which means being made like a saint. They're so close in how they sound. One means becoming wicked. The other means becoming a saint. Isn't that interesting how close they sound? Um, canonization and canonization. Anyhow, uh, the major problem should act as a warning to all of us uh, that no matter how secure we think we are as Christians, we ought to remember that apostasy lurks right around the corner. Uh, the Israelites were in the midst of enjoying Joshua rest when it went downhill. And then furthermore, we need to take careful note of what caused their falling away. It's clear that unlike the previous generation, who always remembered through the reading of God's word, Passover, circumcision, this generation forgot who they were. Instead, they started acting like the people around them. They mixed with them, married them, and then were drawn into their sin. And as Christians, we rightly live in the world, but we have to be careful how we live in it, for we are to be nothing like it. I think that's a pretty obvious application from there. On that, we will break for lunch. Uh, and so what? Uh, Avery, head on. All right. Please just start with the word furthermore. <laughs> furthermore? <laughs> Furthermore, the requirement of God's punishment that leads to repentance, which is echoed through the nine cycles of judges. So, uh, all right. So I am going to go uh, kind of quickly here again. We're just about done with judges here. Um, so we're just going to look at one cycle here. Uh, it's going to be the same pattern for any of the judges. Uh, but for now, we'll look at Othniel, mainly because he's got one of the coolest names of all the judges. Othniel. Uh, so in chapter 3, uh, Israel forgets God and serves other gods, as we see them do. Consequently, God is rightly angry, as we see in uh, verse 8 here of chapter 3. And this leads to God's punishment. In this case, it was slavery. Uh, but in verse 9, Israelites... The Israelites cry out to God, and God provides a savior in the person of Othniel, and he goes to war and restores peace. That's verses uh, 7 through 11. And then verse 12, it all starts all over again. Uh, it's interesting. It doesn't even talk much about this 
time of prosperity and peace before it all starts happening all over again. They get delivered and it all just starts happening all over again. Uh, verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and this time the Lord brought up the king of Moab. But uh, this pattern plays out over and over and over again in all the stories of the judges. And it's always to emphasize their constant stubbornness and sin and God's constant justice and grace. Um, sadly, they, all, they constantly required God's judgment as we often require his discipline as his children. Uh, but they're continually being oppressed by foreign enemies, enemies that they should have destroyed, um, but did not. Um, they are sent by God for covenant violations. It's interesting that God uses their disobedience to come back and bite them. Uh, so they require this punishment because that's the only thing that's going to wake them up, lead them to repentance. Um, have a little personal anecdote, but we'll bypass it because we're we need to catch up. Uh, we need to be careful how we apply this on this side of the New Testament. Um, in some senses, we see God's spirit still acting this way. Um, often as we look upon a sinful world, the decay of the human heart, God's punishment of our world, his right punishment to come, we realize that our of our we realize our desperate need to cry out to him in repentance. Um, so we, we do still see that pattern, but it is played out differently on this side of redemption. Uh, then we see the requirement of a perfect savior that leads to true rest. And that's the, the biggest thing we see here in Judges, that every single cycle of every single judge reminds us that God's people need a perfect Savior, yet they never find them in any of the judges. Um, previously, they had Joshua. Joshua died and left them. And then after that, uh, the saviors that follow the judges are neither lasting nor faithful. Uh, yes, they always bring about a, a uh, brief, uh, temporary salvation, but they're certainly not role models. I mean, nobody goes, hey, children, be like Samson. Um, I mean, he is in the Hall of Faith. Let's not downplay him, but it doesn't mean he was always a righteous role model, um, nor did they ever bring about a lasting rule. What is needed is a monarchy, a line of perfect savior king who leads God's people to obey his word entirely, which we will see will be coming in first. And, oh, wait, no, never mind. It never comes. Uh, they have a line of kings, but not the perfect savior king. Uh, but right in the center of this book, uh, God's people do get a king, Abimelech. Uh, Judges 9 says, And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. But he is no faithful king. He is a king who rules Canaan, but he is one who does right in his own eyes. Um, as we end the book of Judges, that is what we see. By the time we reach the end of the book, it's no surprise to read that final depressing and yet very well-known final line. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Uh, the author of Judges, again, who we're not sure of, was getting this across. The sort of stuff we've seen in Judges, all the sin of the people, the invasions, the foreign armies, loss of rest, would not have happened with a covenantly faithful king. 
everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. They needed a king who would act as a shepherd over the people of Israel. Uh, so we would be remiss to not point out again, pointing to Christ in Judges. He, and only he, finally delivers his people from their woes. Christ and only Christ brings a lasting rest. Christ and only Christ solves the problems that these judges could never address. And it's because Christ only ever obeyed all the laws of God. Only he is the perfect king over his people. And only he shepherds his people in untainted righteousness. Uh, real fast, real quick, any questions or comments? All right, then we're going to jump right into the next uh, here in uh, looking at Ruth and Samuel. Uh, looking at Ruth and first and second Samuel here. And we'll see a turning point, a big turning point in the history of redemption. And that is the rise and fall of King David. Uh, and if there's any Old Testament figure um, who can rival Abraham in the way that God uses him to point to and reveal his plan of redemption, it is King David. And so these three books, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, uh, really center, on, center in on who David is, the person of David. And just as God's promises to Abraham set the context for everything we've read so far, his promises to David will now set the context for the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, so we again see that uh, people will point to Abraham and David as the center of all this. But listen to what I said. God's promises to David will now set the context. It's not Abraham or David. It's God's promises. It is always God who sets the context. It is always about who he is not about who Abraham was, not about who David was. It's about the God who made promises to them. So here, Book of Ruth. Um, it functions as a historical and theological prelude to David. It kind of fills in the blanks between Judges and <clears throat> the coming of, of Samuel, preluding the coming of David. Uh, and just like with Judges, the author of the Book of Ruth is unknown. Most likely it was compiled uh, during David's reign. Uh, look at verse 1 of chapter 1 of Ruth. And uh, the context, the verse there says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So this was taking place when it was still in the days of judges. Um, most likely early part of 11th century B.C. Uh, so, as we talked about in the last lesson, there's this 350-year period of the judges. And again, it was characterized by the cycles of rebellion, uh, God's judgment. They would repent. God would deliver them. Uh, it was during this cycle. And as a result, you can imagine the, insta the national instability during this time. A time of great turmoil, a time of great disorder. And so the book of Ruth acts as a turning point in God's redemptive plan. He's preparing his people to transition away from this chaos of their self-centeredness to a period of order and peace under King David, who 
again, who is a foreshadow of Jesus. So <clears throat> the question of the heart of the book is, does God still care? Does he still care for Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, in light of the loss of her husband and sons? Does he still care for Israel in the midst of more than 300 years of rebellion? And the clear answer in Ruth is that God is our kinsman redeemer. That is one of the most incredible and beautiful things that we see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, this law of the kinsman redeemer. It is incredible. Um, and he is the kinsman redeemer who perfectly cares for us in everything. So the theme statement for Ruth could be something like the following. God sovereignly orchestrates all things, even trials, for the good of his people, who he will one day redeem through the perfect rule of the kinsman king. And so uh, there are some pivotal texts here in Ruth 1, 2, 3, and 4 that God brings affliction, Yahweh arranges circumstances, he builds suspense, and then he provides a redeemer. Uh, and so we're going to look at three main texts in the book, which kind of give snapshots into this story. And one is, the first one is the bitterness of sin. Uh, in the first chapter of Ruth, we're introduced to Naomi, uh, and she is an Israelite woman who married someone who is not an Israelite. Her husband, uh, sons have died, leaving her with just her daughters-in-law, Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah. This is Orpah. Orpah, what a name, Orpah. Orpah and Ruth, uh, and she's alone with them in this foreign land, and you know there were no social safety nets, so she is, they're unable to provide for themselves. They're, they're all widows. So in verses 11, 12, and 20, uh, this is what we read. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, that's Ruth chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters, because at this point, Naomi is returning to uh, her homeland, Israel. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And she said to them in verse 20, She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So uh, if her standing in for Israel, we can hear of Israel's despair, that the nation groans beneath its weight, the sin of judgment from God uh, in this time of, of the judges. Um, and of course, Naomi is tasting the bitter fruit of her own sin. What was her own sin? she left the promised land to escape this cycle of judgment that God had brought upon them. Uh, she married outside of the children of Israel. She mixed um, with a foreign nation. But in spite of the fact that she doesn't deserve God's favor, the end of chapter 1 provides some hope. Orpah leaves. Um, but Ruth stays with her saying, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. You've probably seen that. I don't know how many signs or whatever. Um, your people will be my people and your God, my God. And so this is how it begins um, about God bringing both Ruth and Naomi to a story that is full of God's redemption, restoration, and an incredible picture of the kinsman redeemer.
So uh, fast forwarding to chapter four, uh, if you want to turn there, we'll read verses uh, nine through 12. And this is what we read. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from, bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chil Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and, may, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So this is where we see Boaz fulfilling um, that role of kinsman redeemer, um, buying back uh, Ruth as his wife to, uh, to redeem her from where she was uh, not being able to provide for herself in destitution, uh, buying her back as part of as her kinsman. Uh, so it wasn't obligatory, but it was valued. And this is what's interesting about this. He wasn't obliged to do this. To be a kinsman redeemer, you had to have both the desire and the ability. You know, you might have the ability. He had the ability, but it, I don't really want to marry this lady. Or he might have said, I'd really love to marry this lady, but I'm not her kinsman. I can't redeem her. To be a kinsman redeemer required both desire and ability. Flash forward to Jesus. He had the power and by the grace of God, because of his great love with which he loved us, he had the desire. Uh, what's that? Oh, oh okay. Uh, at its core, the book of Ruth is about two days. The day Ruth was fed and the day, sh day she was wed. Again, you can tell a pastor wrote this. Uh, the day she was fed and the day she was wed. Fed and wed. <laughs> I'm going to stop now. Until <laughs> the day she was dead. <laughs> feeds her in chapter two and marries her in chapter four man if i don't know that all it took i didn't get married till i was 33 i'd have just bought a girl a meal at mcdonald's and so uh, the result is that ruth and naomi both experience undeserved kindness from god through the redeemer who is also their kinsman uh, and then the wisdom of god's plan in verses 13 through 17 there uh so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. For, or, yeah, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. 
And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Uh, so through, through the entire book of Ruth, we see not only does God care for his people, but he does so ways that uh, he does so in ways that exceed our knowledge. Uh, Naomi and a lot of the characters in the story look at their circumstances and conclude that God's far off, that he's unconcerned with what's going on in their lives. Uh, maybe even he's the source of their suffering, but nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, what's going on is that God is sovereignly unfolding his plan, directing human events to meet the specific needs of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, as well as preparing the way for the coming king who will rescue Israel from the time of the judges, and as always, point us forward to our future kinsman, redeemer, and king. So here, it, it took Boaz and David to make this picture of the one man, Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer and our righteous king. Uh, <clears throat> so, First and Second Samuel, uh, real quick, any questions or comments? All right, First and Second Samuel, background and context. So while the book of Ruth prepares us theologically for the transition between judges and the establishment of the monarchy, uh, first and second Samuel give us the overview of this transition. So one is gives us a real theological perspective and the other is a very rubber meets the road uh, perspective on this transition. Uh, the books are named of course for Samuel, the prophet Samuel, uh, and he is the main figure uh, between the transition from the time of judges to the time of uh, the monarchs. So he was Israel's final judge, as well as the one who anointed uh, the nation's first first king. And originally, this was one text, um, and it likely had several authors, though they're unknown. Um, so we, we don't know who wrote First and Second Samuel, um, but we can deduce from first chronicles that samuel did leave written records samuel himself uh, first chronicles 29 kind of implies that um, but the recording of samuel's death in first samuel 25 kind of implies he didn't write most of the books uh, instead it's named after him in light of the fact that he plays a key role uh, throughout them so a, a theme for first and second samuel could be this that god rules his people through the king who is a representative of the people and whose actions will bring God's blessing or God's punishment. Uh, and so almost as a continuation to the, the answer to Ruth's question, does God still care? These two books, First and Second Samuel, show us God's enduring compassion for his people uh, by providing them a king who is to be their example uh, to he, he is to be their defender. He is to be their representative. And so Saul and many who follow fail in these duties, as we know. But even so, God always proved faithful to his covenant by establishing the Davidic line, the line of David, ultimately coming to Jesus, who perfectly reigns over all creation as our perfect and eternal king. 
All right. So to give a historical overview, they can these books can be divided into five historical sections. Um, the story of Samuel himself, chapters one through seven. You know how he was born, and then how Hannah wasn't supposed to be able to have kids, and so she uh, said, "Hey, if Lord, if you give me a kid, I will dedicate him to you." And so God gives her Samuel, uh, miraculous birth, uh, dedicates him to the Lord, uh, and was raised by Eli. And then transition to the monarchy where Samuel, this is chapters 8 through 15, where Samuel anoints Saul as a king over Israel, uh, which is interesting because God twice actually rejects Saul because of his disobedience. Uh, but finally, okay, fine, you want him? You can have him. Uh, and then the story shifts to the back and forth between um, the newly anointed King David but then and Saul who is stubbornly holding on to his power. David has been anointed king, but Saul's not letting go. And so we have this, this back and forth, this very hostile back and forth on the, on the part of Saul. And then moving into 2 Samuel, we have the life of David. Uh, and as a real account does, it gives us both the good and bad of who David is and what David does. Uh, it, this is what takes center stage for the book of 1 Samuel. The first 20 chapters um, catalog the death of Saul, the establishment of Jerusalem, uh, the Davidic covenant, covenant um, military battles, war, uh, rebellions of Absalom, David's son, uh, and then Sheba, uh, a rebellious Benjamite. So, and then finally, in chapters 21 and 24, First uh, Samuel, we have a series of events that draw this all to a close, and that is the death of Saul's son uh, due to multiple wars of the Philistines, David's last words, and his census of the Jewish people. Uh, I should say his sinful census of the Jewish people. So beyond the historical aspects of this, we, of course, get some theological themes that are essential for understanding the true purpose of these books. Remember, the purpose of these is not simply historical, uh, is not just history, it's redemptive history. So there are all, there's always something more to these than just a retelling of past events. We should always be looking for theological themes within these. Now, the, the chronological narrative is important. But what it teaches us about God is the main point of the text, not what it teaches us about Samuel or Saul or David or anything else. What it teaches us about God is the main point. Uh, and when we read First and Second Samuel uh, as a just a collection of historical stories, even inspirational historical stories, uh, it can be tempting to transform them into allegory or moralistic lessons um, to make them relevant or contemporary. Uh, again, one of the go-tos to show the pitfalls of this is the account of David and Goliath. Uh, so many times you've heard preachers, teachers use a story, um, God will deliver us from the giants in our life, or you should have the faith of David. Uh, what you need to do, they often argue, is take the stone of faith and the stone of prayer and the stone of Bible memorization and conquer that giant in your life. But you know what those stones in the story represent? <clears throat> Stones, rocks, yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> Glyce Brothers. Yeah. Uh, uh, the story is full of theological meaning. Uh, it's about how the God, the king that God chooses is the king who prevails. Uh, in the context, God's favor has left Saul. It's resting on David. It's about how Israel's God is truly great, not David. Uh, Goliath expresses his disrespect for Yahweh, and that's why God lays him in the dust. Uh, it's a significant chapter in the whole Bible story about the Savior that is to come. Unlike the judges who cared little for God's reputation, David is a Savior who acts because of his jealousy for the fame of God's name. I mean, when he comes out against Goliath, he, he doesn't hold back in saying why he's coming out there. Oh, you want to talk about my God, Goliath? Well, my God's about to show you what for. I mean, it's, it's all about God's reputation for David. When you look at the judges like Samson, yeah, what, it wasn't about God. Um, but for David, that's not the way it is. He was zealous for the name of his God. Uh, through 1 Samuel, God is telling us that the Christ, like David, will save his people out of a commitment to God's glory. As we mentioned in John 17, when Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify me that I may glorify you. It's a commitment to God's glory. Uh, if we ignore that theological theme um, and try to apply these books to our lives without putting them in the context of redemption history, we're going to miss the point of the books. They will become allegories or they will become moralistic lessons that you can get from Aesop's fables. You don't need the Bible then. We're gonna, so we're going to spend the rest of this lesson quickly uh, considering two broad theological themes, monarchy and rest. So though God is the true king of Israel, uh, the central drama of First and Second Samuel is all about God's people demanding a king like the other nations around them. It seems so petulant and immature. They have a king. Why can't we have a king? That's basically what they're saying. In 1 Samuel 8, they're saying, we want a king over us. Now I can't even not read it in that voice. We want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. It, it needs to be read in a voice like that. Samuel, who already was leading Israel as a judge, he gets kind of upset at this and does not want God to grant their request. But the Lord tells him, obey the voice of the people and all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So again, we still see that same pattern of them rebelling and rejecting God's leadership. Um, I mean, they've been specially called out by God from all the nations to be a light and yet they complain that they can't be like all the nations that they've been called out from. Uh, but how often do we ourselves trade our esteemed place as God's people for what this world offers? It's like when C.S. Lewis said, we're like a child on holiday at the beach playing in a puddle when we have the whole ocean at our backs. Uh, so instead of trusting the one who has delivered them from the bondages of sin, as Yahweh brought them out of Egypt, we, we look for uh, inferior deliverers uh, like wealth, comfort, safety, status. We look for these things. We look to these things. Um, so again, before we are too quick to point our finger at Israel, 
uh, it's good for us to look in the mirror. So this trade on God's rule for the rule of man is, again, pretty typical of a pattern we see throughout uh, the books of Samuel. They put their hope in an earthly leader. That leader forsakes their way, God's ways, and not just lets them down, but leads them down the same path. First uh, Samuel 2, uh, where Eli, the priest, loses favor because he's allowed his own sons to neglect their priestly duties, uh, sa says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord de declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Uh, and to emphasize the fact that a human leader um, can never be the people of ultimate hope, there's this pattern that we see throughout the book of Samuel. As one leader declines, God raises another one up. Uh, and this cycle continues throughout these books. And the leaders, even the kings, never provide the perfect rule that the people need. And so it begins with Eli, and it's going to continue through David. Uh, so, you know, Samuel, when he was a boy, was given to Eli. So we see as, as Eli declines, Samuel is on the rise. In 1 Samuel 3, it says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So this, this tend to the X figure, one is in decline as the other is ascending, occurs between first Eli and Samuel, then Samuel and Saul, then Saul and David. Uh ultimately begging the question, is this going to work here? Will this whole monarchy thing actually work for Israel? In hindsight, 2020, we know that the answer is no, uh, at, at least not the way the Jewish people expected that it would work. Now, it worked exactly the way God told them it would pan out, but not the way the Jewish people thought it would. Um, they thought that, hey, having an earthly king would bring them comfort and safety, but the kings kept on declining, and even David sinned and fell short. Uh, and to emphasize this need for a perfectly righteous king, in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, God starts to deal with the people based on the faithfulness or faithlessness of the king. Uh, he's, he's really pointing to the fact, you need a righteous king. So I'm going to deal with you as a nation based on the behavior of your king. So the king functions as a representative of the nation, especially when it comes to the covenant blessings and curses uh, that God promised in Deuteronomy. Is the king faithful? Well, then the people will be blessed with prosperity and peace. Is he sinful? Is he breaking faith with God? Then the people are cursed with famine and exile, just like God foretold through Moses. Now we see in 2 Samuel 21, now there is a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So one king's disobedience affects the whole nation. Uh, 
But even as we see this, this wasn't outside God's plan. God wasn't going, great, they really messed this one up, time for a plan B. These all were part of God's perfect plan to point to a future hope. And you can see God's wisdom displayed here. Um, through their monarchy, uh, or though the monarchy was rooted in sinful desires, sinful rebellion, lack of faith, the Lord still used this, this office, this role of king, to underscore our utter dependency and complete inability to provide for our own good. Uh, give us a king and we'll be just fine. It didn't pan out. This is essential for us for an understanding of the gospel. Proverbs there says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is the way of death. This is a great example of that. Uh, the Lord also uses Israel's king, especially David, as a type of Christ. Um, underscoring the point that no matter how good your king is, you need a perfect king. Because even your king David failed. You need a perfect king. It emphasizes that point. Second Samuel 8 kind of summarizes it up some. It says in verses 14 and 15, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. So listen to how great David was. But compared to Jesus, you wouldn't call David just good and victorious, no matter how just good victorious he may have been. Compared to Jesus, everything fades into insignificance and even sinfulness. Again, compared to who Jesus is. Uh, so why does the New Testament reference David more than any other Old Testament figure, more than Abraham, more than Moses? Why does Revelation 22 remind us that Jesus is the root and offspring of David? Why not the root and offspring of Abraham or the root and offspring of Eve? No, he's the root and offspring of David because no one points to Jesus as king like David did. So these aren't just books chronicling the beginning of Israel's monarchy, Israel's kingship. They are pointing us, they're signposts pointing us to the ultimate King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus. So again, never mistake these books as just history. They are redemptive history pointing us to Christ. Any questions, comments, thoughts? All right. So though Israel has inhabited the promised land for a, a good a good while at this time, um, it's been characterized by these cycles of victory and defeat, rebellion, victory, defeat. Uh, and remember how we talked about taking possession of the land in the book of Joshua was the high point of redemptive history so far at this time. And now with the establishment of David as king, they finally begin to enjoy some of this promised rest. Uh, in 2 Samuel 5, David takes his rightful place as king over all Israel, and he establishes Jerusalem as the capital. Then in chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant is brought to Jerusalem. And we all know the Ark of the Covenant is a thing that Indiana Jones went after. Uh, so uh, it was the, the throne of God on earth uh, uh, at that time. So in chapter 6, we see the throne of God and David's throne 
occupying the same city, Jerusalem. So after generations, and for them this was huge because for generations they were a nomadic people. Um, They didn't have a land, they didn't have a resting place. But finally, God is giving them a sense of, of permanence. He's giving them a land that they can rest in, no longer as sojourners, no longer nomads, but a place of rest where he dwells with them. Remember that that major theme, God's people, God's place, God's rule. It's finally here. So in the context of that rest, um, Samuel goes on to a grand crescendo as God makes uh, a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, And we read this, verses 1 through 3 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, in verse 1, it says that David and the people have rest. But now David wants to build a house for Yahweh. Um, He wants to build a permanent temple for worship. But Yahweh sends Nathan back to deliver the message that this isn't the time. It's not time to build a temple. In verses 5 and 6 we read, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And He goes on to say to David, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And the time from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So he doesn't get upset with David, but he's saying, you know what? I've never lived in a house. Why now? But here's what I will do. I will make you a house. Uh, And so up to this point, God is kind of just restating his promises to Abraham. But then in verses 12 through 16, he expands to something greater. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So here God is kind of putting a spin on the word house. Um, David was talking about a dwelling place, but God expanded that to to mean a dynasty, a, a kingly dynasty, saying that his house would be established forever. Uh skip down a little so we have the near and far uh, fulfillment of prophecy here 
Uh, whenever a prophet would make a prediction about the distant future, there's often a near uh, or incomplete fulfillment of that prophecy on a, on a smaller scale. Uh, one of the reasons for this is so that the hearers would have some for, form of verification that the long-term prophecy would come to pass as well. So we see that Yahweh is using the word house in two ways. He is establishing a house or a dynasty for David. Uh, and one of the members of that dynasty will have an everlasting kingdom, Jesus. But God also says that David's son will build God's house, the temple. So he's saying, hey, David, there will come an everlasting king one day. And just so you know that my word can be trusted, your son's going to build a temple for me. Uh, and so when that temple came about, everybody knew, you know what? God's promise is he's faithful. He said this would happen. And he said this in conjunction with something that's going to happen later. We can trust him. So the near prophecy comes to fruition in Solomon. Uh, and, you know, Solomon didn't last forever. Uh, but one of his descendants, descendants would be forever king. Uh, but in the temple, we have that near fulfillment. So Solomon will be the one to build the temple. And in Hebrews 3, we read, Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Um, Ephesians 2 says that we are his temple being built up. So the early fulfillment is that Solomon is the king, the temple is the house. But the ultimate fulfillment is that Jesus is the king and we are the house. And so all of this points us to the fact uh, of God's plan to provide perfect rest for his people. The establishment of David's throne and of Jerusalem as the city of God, uh, this allows Israel to end their nomadic wandering existence and finally have a settled life, God's place. Uh, the promise that one of David's son would build a temple uh, underscores this notion of rest. Uh, it gives a sense of permanence uh, as the, the tabernacle, which was built so that it could be moved from place to place, it's being replaced by a temple that is permanent. It, it, it's not mobile. It will not move. It will not uh, go away. Um, it's traded for this glorious and long-standing place of worship. And most importantly, the Lord's covenant that he made with David secures that, that his house, his dynasty, uh, will be established forever through the Messiah to come. And this is the rest that comes from Christ, who is our hope. And then Hebrews 1, think about this. Hebrews 1, 3, uh, we've read it previously. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, he sat down because his work is complete. His sacrifice is complete. His sacrifice is what we call efficacious. It, it actually fulfilled the purpose for which sacrifice was there for, to atone for sin. When the sacrifice of all priests before could never do that, Christ did. The battle against sin, the battle against death, the battle against Satan, it's over, it's won. And he is now the king who reigns forever. 
He is the son of David whose rule will never end. Uh, and it is this rest, the rest uh, of the one who's completed his mission. It's in him that we enjoy and we look forward to entering more fully that rest when this world passes away and we are in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, our glorious rest because of our glorious king, who is our glorious high priest, who is our glorious sacrifice. I mean, he he is everything. Uh, you know, you've heard the phrase, oh, he's the total package. In Christ, we really do have it. I mean, how many different characters and events in the Old Testament does it take to foreshadow everything that Christ is? It is so amazing when you think about that, that it took all of this to tell us about the one king that we have. It's, it's amazing. Uh, so Ruth and First and Second Samuel, uh, a very exciting chapter of the Old Testament. By chapter, I mean era, time period. Uh, but like everything else in the Old Testament, it leaves us wanting for more. It's still an incomplete picture. All of Israel at this point has got to be wondering, when's the eternal kingdom coming? When is the eternal king going to be here? What's he going to be like? Uh, and these and a lot of other questions um, are eventually answered and will be eventually answered as we continue to walk through the Old Testament. Uh, but in light of what we've seen so far, we can go forward secure in the knowledge that God cares for his people. He's given them a king who will faithful, faithfully care for them so that they might ultimately find rest in who he is. True. True. <laughs> yes. Uh, any other comments or thoughts before we move on to John? No, we're, we're in the Old Testament. Oh, oh, Job. Yes, we're going to talk about Job. Uh, actually, we got Kings and Chronicles up next. <laughs> 